And welcome to episode 169 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, back once again, and this time we are turning the calendar year and beginning our look at 1992 in the World Wrestling Federation. Today we'll be tackling January and February of 1992. Uh, of course, this is following on from our previous looks at 1990 and 1991 uh, that you can go back and check out in the archives and all the usual places. So that's Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Give those a listen if you haven't already, because they were an absolute blast. And like the two previous years that I mentioned, I am joined on this journey throughout 1992 by the one and only Kyle Ross of Top Rope Nation over in Cleveland, Ohio. Kyle, I know you're looking forward to this as much as I am. And after everything that's gone today, how the hell are you? I'm doing great, buddy. I'm doing great. Nothing, as you know, is going to stop me from doing this podcast on a fine (laughs) Monday afternoon here in Cleveland. Uh, I believe, so just to give the people, before I make the joke, uh, just to give the people a peek behind the curtain, um, we've been having some work done on the house this morning. Very loud, very loud stuff. And there's just no way we could have done a podcast while people were just drilling gutters into the side of our home. And it was really funny because I was, my wife had told the crew, hey, my husband's got an important podcast to do today you know what are you going to be done and i'm like kind of like walking out there every so often you know not you know <laughs> tapping my wrist because that'd be like really rude but you know kind of doing a status check hey how far are we and you know i, I was thinking to myself um well isn't the daily mail one of your guys big tabloids or at least used to be Unfo- something like unfo- that unfortunately so yes it is okay well I, I believe a headline coming to a newsstand near you might be american man just wants to talk pro wrestling livid at home renovations that's where <laughs> we're at here today and it's uh, but great to be here and uh yeah nothing can stop me it's gonna be great and that's it. And we got so, so, so much to talk about. Carl, you went through yes. all these notes that we're talking about today, only covering January and February because there is just tons to talk about. If we thought we had our plate full in 91, 92 is, is all that and more. On screen and off, questionable television, scandal and sleaze in management that goes all the way to the top. Amazing how much has changed in 30 years. Uh, <laughs> a gigantic news year. But before we jump onto all of that for 1992, there are a couple of housekeeping notes, man. 91 series that you wanted to touch on, Kyle, before we wrap that up. Okay, so I always trust your memory more than <laughs> mine on these things. So I don't think I issued an apology that needed to be issued uh, to Mr. Dave Meltzer. Uh, This goes back to part three, our discussion about taste uh, in matches and corresponding star ratings. And I was talking about Warrior Savage vis-a-vis Perfect and Heart. I made a comment where I'm like, well, of course, Dave Meltzer would prefer a match like Perfect and Heart to Warrior Savage. Well, that's actually an incorrect statement by me. He gave Warrior and Savage a slightly higher rating, four and a quarter to just four stars versus uh, Perfect and Art. My goodness. And you listen to that. Remember a time when you actually might be higher than Meltzer on star (laughs) ratings? (laughs) Like, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like, here's two matches that in WWE, WWF at the time, obviously, that uh, I'm higher than him. And then, you know, I look at his Money in the Bank 2022 ratings. I was like, Jesus, Dave, I'm like two stars lower than you on some of these matches. Did we watch the same show? But I just wanted to, you know, issue that apology. You know, if people were listening and 
you know, check Dave's ratings. Like, hey, wait a minute, what is this guy talking about? Yeah, fair is fair. Fair is fair, and you wanted to correct that. Yeah. Um, for the record, Warrior Savage four and three quarters, perfect heart four and a half. Those are the true ratings from yours, truly. <laughs> um, now we also in part four, this is humorous. Uh, going back to Mr. Meltzer and the Wrestling Observer newsletter, uh, those who have a subscription uh, and access to the online archive know that he's up to 2005 right now, and I love reading the archives over there. Yeah, that's www.online.com. And the Ric Flair Brian Knobs nightclub fight that we referenced in part four, I believe part four B of ninety one, yeah. uh, Flair apparently referenced that at the two thousand five Hall of Fame when he was inducting Roddy Piper. Knobs was in the crowd. Knobs, of course, is a big hanger on of Hogan, so he, he was just in attendance. And Flair just started shooting on him about it. <laughs> it was cut out of the TV broadcast, and Meltzer Aww. made a note that like. If you watch the TV, Flair was just jumping back and forth, and you would have no idea what he was talking about because, yeah, they edited out him taking a pot shot at Brian Knob. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> but our last housekeeping note, I think this is the most important one uh, before we flip to the calendar uh, or flip the calendar to 1992, Liam. Um, I was thinking after we last recorded about what was the definitive way they should have booked 9091. You know, should, I guess, put in quotes, this is a kind of a fantasy rebook, but this was just taking into account the lessons we learned yeah. from breaking down those uh, two years. And is it safe to say these were three of the big lessons we've learned so far? Rude feud killed Warriors title run dead. Check. Sergeant Slaughter was just an absolutely atrocious idea on all levels, and anything you can come up with to replace it is an improvement. Absolutely. Okay. And then this was, I thought, the big eye opener. This was not something that I felt strongly about going in, but I remember you and I talking about it. And off air, we, we seemed to be in agreement that this realization was correct. Had Flair been brought in in 1990 rather than 91, even though he wouldn't have had the title, it would have been better for both him and Titan. Yes, I think that that's, I think that's, yeah, I would agree completely, actually. And, and especially from the Titan perspective, because you're basically going to put Flair in Slaughter spot. Yeah, and which, so, which avoids so many problems. Okay, so this is what I think perfect world would have been the best case scenario for WWF. And as we're about to get into, it doesn't matter anyway, because Hogan lied on our studio and screwed it all <laughs> up. But you bring Flair in in 90, he beats Warrior for the title at Survivor Series. Why Survivor Series? Well, I don't want him to do it at the Rumble for this reason. If you bring Flair in a year early, what's the worst thing that you lose by doing that? The 1992 Royal Rumble. Which we will talk about today. Yes, we will. Exactly. So, okay. What if Flair's the champion and you basically do the 92 Rumble in 91 with him as the champ? Same thing he wins. I think that would be fantastic. (laughs) Okay, because you're, uh, you're not... And we talked about how he was portrayed a lot, right? And we're going to talk more about that today. It wasn't very strong. But if he's the champion and he does that routine, it's a pretty strong world champion all of a sudden you have. And then at WrestleMania 7, you would go to Hogan Flair. It would be a fresh match. You could have done Rude, or Rude, pardon me, Flair and Warrior at the houses. You could have avoided uh, Flair and Hogan having to do that at the time. And and, and then you have it. Then you roll in 91. You're going to have Undertaker for Hogan. You're probably going to do a Hogan Flair house show series. 
as return matches after WrestleMania mm-hmm. 7. And then you've got Sid waiting in the wings. So as long yeah. as, and then you, hopefully Hogan doesn't lie on Arsenio is, is you know, I think the key <laughs> piece of fancy booking here. But th- that's what I was thinking, I think, Liam. Yeah, and, and and as I've kind of put my own theory out there from the beginning of this, this entire look at the 90s, I don't think Arsenio even happens if Slaughter isn't the one put in that position because it's that weird domino effect we talked about before about how the negative press on the WWF becomes kind of an issue. And therefore, when when wrestling... Because, again, wrestling in steroids was not something that was really going to surprise the general public. It was just the nature of everything. And then, obviously, as we're going to talk about today, the denial leads to the snowballing of people looking to uh, kind of shoot Hulk Hogan between the eyes, as it were. But I think that from, 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 a, from the, the, the flair perspective, storyline-wise, it's great. And you would probably have a cleaner more concise version of what they did. And again, Hogan at that point is sticking around. So you don't have that worry, which obviously you have here in 92 because of everything that's going on. So it just, it just feels like that would be the idea. If if you could go back in time and change anything about this whole period, it is the fact that Flair comes in at SummerSlam 1990 or a little bit after that, whatever, but he comes in, beats Warrior at Survivor Series. You get to do the, and again, maybe it's more of the outside the thing of the entire promotion trying to get, (laughs) <laughs> the belt off Flair, Flair wins, and then obviously Hogan comes calling at WrestleMania. Yeah, and you could have done an angle, obviously, to set up Flair and Hogan at the end of it, where Flair cheated to win at the yeah. very end. And Randy Savage would have been in the mix, a hotter Randy Savage, is still as a heel. You could still do Warrior Macho King in that deal. Yeah. You know, so you've got a hotter WrestleMania, a hotter one two for WrestleMania seven, but alas, that didn't happen. Flair didn't come in 1990. He came in 91. We liked. Right. We were in agreement here. We liked the fall of 91 better than any period we've talked about so far, but it did not live up to its potential. No, agreed. And obviously that kind of sets the scene for what we have as we uh, we, we touch on January and February 92, because fall after a pretty good summer in 91 with, again, Taker and, and Warrior doing pretty good business. It kind of even though creatively speaking, the television was pretty damn good in the fall. Yeah, things kind of take a little bit of a turn here. Yeah. And. Let's just throw this out there for the listeners, whet the appetite a little bit. I feel like in terms of scope, everything we're going to cover, we, we we do need to get into this, I think, is where I'm oh, getting yeah. it. Um, man, this is an ambitious episode we're about to get into. These are the longest notes that we've ever had for any episode, and we're only doing two months. We're, we're not even, <laughs> you know, because, Mar- I mean, all hell breaks loose in March, obviously, and to add that to what we already have, I mean, we'd be here all day, so we'd like to keep this under four hours, I think. So let's get to it, man. If we can, if we can. Now, again, of course, thank you very much to Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, for a lot of the notes we're going to read today. We'll obviously uh, quote a lot of what he said. And as a preview of things to come here throughout the rest of this podcast, as well as the rest of the 92 series, we're going to read a quote from Meltzer's uh, Observer coverage, an article he did in 2004 uh, as part of his History of the WWF. Uh, pieces that he did during that era. Meltzer writes, the period from late 1991 through early 1992 was another of the most pivotal periods in wrestling history. The industry was going through its biggest scandal of the modern era, and the results of it saw the industry go into the toilet in 1992 and not emerge from it until Eric Bischoff's creation of Nitro in 1995 began to revitalize the industry the next year. A lot of that is forgotten today, because it would almost be, it would be almost impossible for such a thing to be repeated. There were so many things different in society at the time, while steroids, which got the lion's share of the publicity, were around in many sports, the public wasn't nearly as aware of them, and either as accepting of them or as numb to, the, to uh, realize the futility and unavoidable hypocrisies of the subject. 
The WF did itself no credit in the wake of the 1991 trial of Dr. George T. Zahorian, who was convicted on charges of supplying steroids and painkillers to pro wrestlers and spent a few years in prison. The company's attempt to act as if Zahorian's case had nothing to do with them didn't go over well with anyone, particularly when the witnesses testifying uh, they were getting steroids were largely from the WWF, and Zahorian was selling steroids at WWF events and to the company's owner and biggest star. There was a cloud hanging over the business in late 1991. Behind the scenes, it appeared all hell was going to break loose because several media outlets were working on stories about Hogan lying on Arsenio Hall when he claimed he had only used steroids three times in his life, all for injury rehabilitation. Nobody knew what the effect would be, but those in the WWF were in denial, thinking it was a story that would blow away and have no effect on the company. <laughs> that is uh, <laughs> a bad thought process in Titan Towers, needless to say. So look. We can do an entire three-plus hours on just the steroid scandal today, but we're not because we also want to talk about what was taking place on TV. You know, that's a little more yeah. fun to talk about in our wheelhouse, I think. That's fair to say. It's what we want to talk about more so. But the steroid scandal, as we have made clear throughout 91, it's unavoidable. You have to touch on it, obviously. You know, fair is fair between the sheets. You know, if you want more detail, they're going crazy with this thing right now as we record um, just the steroid scandal. But... For our purposes, Liam, the point I'd like to make is that we're going to hit enough of it, the scandals, to make you realize that the kind of fantasy booking we did throughout 90 and 91, particularly 90, is pretty much irrelevant to try now, which is ironic because today we are going to be touching on one of the most second-guessed decisions booking-wise in WrestleMania history. But ultimately, no matter how you choose to rebook these first three months of 92, I don't think there's any saving the World Wrestling Federation from itself. Your thoughts? Oh, yeah. Agreed. There is no magic creative elixir that will have any bearing on things at this point. Uh, the only creative decision that you know they could have made that would have changed the course of these events, as we've talked about, is, is in the past. We're long past that point now. And uh, and and from here, it's uh, it's kind of worthless. We've actually did, we did a podcast once. I remember talking about trying to change this period of time, and I think the conclusion that everybody came to was it's pointless. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. Like the outside forces are going to to cripple anything that you try to do differently. Yeah, absolutely. I, I the, and like I said, I, I don't. It's interesting what you said. If Arsenio never happened. Does Arsenio happen if they don't do slaughter? I think that's the mm. magic question we can't answer because yeah. you, 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 you know, I mean, if for some reason Hogan goes on Arsenio and lies, then that undoes every any improvement you could make in ninety and ninety one. But he lied, and uh, we're about to talk about that. Because let's talk about the repercussions, shall yeah. we? <laughs> when it comes crashing down and it hurts inside, <laughs> and boy does it hurt! Now, as we teased at the end of our last episode, Inside Edition aired its piece focusing on Hulk Hogan and his apparent lying about past anabolic steroid use. Not just lying on the Arsenio Hall show on July 18th, 91, but also lying dozens of other times in the subsequent media interviews while promoting the mo at the uh, the movie Suburban Commando. Uh, superstar Billy Graham, Hogan's one-time idol, uh, stated that he personally injected Hogan multiple times and that Hogan was a heavy steroid user from the late 1970s through the entire decade of the 1980s, which, uh, uh oh that's a little bit different to Hogan's tale of events. Uh, Graham on Inside Edition says, it takes synthetic steroids to make you and give you the muscle mass and density you see on wrestlers today. It's just a common, logical fact of life. Uh, from there, it only gets worse for Hogan and Titan Sports. 
Yes, it does, because also on Inside Edition, Liam, Dr. D. David Schultz with a clear axe to grind uh, sort of comes out of mothballs, and he just starts dropping haymakers. Quote, if kids are believing that if they take their vitamins and say their prayers that they are going to grow up to be some super athlete, well, I've got news for you, said Schultz. What a killer of dreams Dr. D is here. <laughs> Quote, you take your vitamins and you say your prayers, but you're not going to grow up to be 300 pounds with 24-inch arms unless you take steroids. Schultz said that Hogan used to stay at his house in exchange for steroids back when Hogan was just breaking into the business. Furthermore, the show actually aired a copy of the FedEx records from the Zahorian trial which showed that Hogan continued receiving steroids well after the time he said he stopped using them. Uh, again, Hogan claimed on our seal three times for rehabilitation purposes. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that seems like we've done a little more than three, Terry. <laughs> but uh, let's, you know, Dr. D. David Schultz, most people know this. They, you know, remember him just absolutely just slapping the shit out of John Stossel on 2020. Great uh, moment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, when Stossel confronted him with the uh, question of whether or not, you know, it's all fake, right? And then, you know, Schultz has claimed that he was egged on to do that yeah. by WWF management. Um, but it actually wasn't that that got him fired. It was him <laughs> confronting Mr. T backstage <laughs> at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, so, trying try to get in on the action for WrestleMania. Yeah, so Schultz was a guy, you know, who... You know, I, I believe he was trying to get a book together and, you know, he had had a vendetta against Vince at the WWF going back to late 84. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, Schultz, during his interview with Inside Edition, actually brought documentation of not only a check to Terry Bollier, uh, but the Xerox of the prescription by the doctor and copies of letters he claimed were from several wrestlers who worked in Pensacola uh, claiming Hogan was a steroid distributor as well. Uh, Inside Edition's lawyers, who had to approve every single snippet that went on the air, uh, felt that they had more than enough evidence between the testimony in the trial, the FedEx uh, records, uh, phone conversation months back with Zahorian, Hogan's media appearances regarding the subject, and conversations with uh, Graham Schultz and Schultz's daughter Jessie to put on a story that Hogan was a heavy user of anabolic steroids in the past and then lied publicly. There was a strong enough story for them to headline the show. Sorry, that was a strong enough story for them to headline the show with, says Meltzer. They didn't feel there was enough evidence to get into steroid distribution as part of the story. Mm. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, getting back to what we were, what I had mentioned earlier with the FedEx records, that was like a big thing that McDevitt was able to squash. Yeah. In the Zahori, actual Zahorian, um, that people didn't find out about, but here it is. Inside Edition gets it. They show it. Now, with this check and the allegations <laughs> that Hogan was a steroid distributor, uh, this uh, seems to fall apart rather quickly. Uh, as it turns out, Dave would write this, I believe, years later. Schultz had a written statement from a wrestler signed The Assassin. And, and Dave figured that was as bogus as it could get how about the assassin <laughs> but oh as, yeah as it turned out at the time irv mushnick remember no relation to phil but the nephew of sam in a people magazine article on the destruction of hogan's rep believed it was real and he found that randy cully worked as the assassin on the circuit when hogan was there randy cully was of course also the original demolition smash yeah and mushnick tracks down cully 
you know, also was, was Moondog Rex as well. And Cully confirmed, pardon me, confirmed he sent the affidavit to Schultz and reiterated the claims. <laughs> yeah, which is quite funny because it does sound highly dubious. It's like they've yes. signed the assassin, yeah, as if it was written in the mask. Yeah, yeah I know, the assassin, that's like, like <laughs> the assassin? So yeah, <laughs> th- th- this was not true. And Hogan, obviously, th- th- this never stuck, nor should I. I don't think Hogan was a steroid distributor. Mm, the, the so-called Tampa pipeline lives to see another day then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. Not, not surprisingly, Hogan's attorney uh, tried to get the entire Inside Edition pulled at the last minute, uh, but unlike when he was able to get Hogan's subpoena squashed uh, last summer for the trial, this time McDevitt lost for his part. Vince, <laughs> I love this line, Vince is just upset that the piece chose to focus on Hogan's bad side instead of bouncing it out with all the good things he's done over the years, like defeat Sergeant Slaughter and save us all from Saddam Hussein. I, yeah, I, I love, yeah. Like, what are they supposed to like? I mean, okay, Hogan did do a lot of work with Jared and stuff, and but I mean, come on, Vince. That's, that's not the story. <laughs> no, that's not the story at all. And Dave Meltzer says, quote, as journalism goes, it was a very strong piece with more than enough background information to prove the desired point. Well edited, well focused. While there were more shocking and outstanding allegations said by both Graham Schultz and Schultz's daughter, the piece and allegations made were given ample proof. Hogan comes off looking very bad. Graham and Schultz, on the other hand, according to Dave, come off as being very honest and not at all vindictive. And as I'm putting these notes together, Liam, I'm thinking, <laughs> what a stark contrast this is to us starting our look at 91 with that Bobby Heenan weed story, which we're going <laughs> to laugh off and it goes away after two days uh this you know the idea it would blow over i I, they couldn't really have thought that i mean how naive could you be it's 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 just it's it's willing it to be that is is, and and again how much has changed in 30 years but it Uh, really is it really is honestly the same principle where there are warning signs and their way to address this is to not sell it and just hope that it quietly goes away. Because if they make a stink, then uh, again, it's become, it becomes tomorrow's news too. You, you know what Vince should have done after this Inside Edition piece ran? Oh, let's hear it. <laughs> he should have gone out on TV, just cut a bizarre promo to get the crowd <laughs> going, and they should have walked in the back and yelled, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> We don't know that he didn't. <laughs> yeah, that, that good point. But yeah, that, that always works so well. But yeah, I mean, you make the comparison to today in 2022 and there's the ongoing allegations and, you know, who knows where those go after we record this. But um, it, it's no selling. And now, now they've turned to the very Trumpian uh, move of rallying the base. Oh, good which, Lord. Which, although we're not going to get to that so much today, but next episode, there was rallying the base particularly when it came to hogan as they got Mm. close to wrestlemania yeah for sure now inside edition which again we've watched this thing and and i do kind of agree with dave's sentiments in the sense that the kind of bombastic nature of billy graham which sometimes can just completely undercut credibility when someone is that way he comes off pretty straight laced believe it or not and and dr d who you know some of his comments we, we as we read them off sound pretty amusing especially when when, when they said with his kind of southern drawl uh yeah again seems very good and i just this is not this is not pretty and it's only the start of this media frenzy that takes place. Billy Graham did interviews with The Observer. Mike Tanay's Wrestling Insiders, a radio show out of Vegas and Pro Wrestling Focus in Minneapolis uh, do shows. Schultz did a torch talk with Wade Keller. 
But by far the most explosive interview came when both appeared on John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight in New York. Uh, about eight minutes of this is online and can be listened to, where they lobbed one accusation after another against Hulk and the WWF. Uh, some are so serious that they wouldn't even discuss them, which really raises an eyebrow because he hasn't had time to investigate them themselves. But uh, here are the big ones, and it's a, it's a dirty dozen, I think, as I remember. Yes. So this is, again, Dr. D and Billy Graham, a... Uh, what a tag team. <laughs> a a real been... pair that need to... Yeah, where were they during this podcast boom? Yeah, I mean, who did exactly. But let's go ahead and hit these here. So the first accusation is Schultz claimed that without anabolic steroids, neither himself, Graham, or Hogan would have achieved the level of stardom that they did in wrestling. Meltzer kind of talks that this is almost assuredly correct. I don't think this is breaking any new ground, really. Um now, Dr. T also said Hogan would have never even gotten into the business without steroids. Which that's I think the line I like. Yeah, yeah, that's the line I like. And again, yep, debatable. We'll see. Schultz then said Hogan used excessive amounts of steroids for years and that he personally injected Hogan hundreds of times, mainly in the buttocks, thigh, <laughs> and triceps. I don't, know. I don't know why buttocks was in quotes specifically. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But uh, now Billy Graham chimes in here. Uh, and talks about the uh, cocaine tests the WWF started in 1987. Remember, this came about uh, after the infamous arrest of Jake Roberts, or pardon me, Jim Duggan of the Iron Sheik. Jake Roberts was the guy who uh, got busted. But Graham said the boys would carry around jars of clean urine in their luggage, and they'd use it whenever a test would occur. So Yes. Lovely. <laughs> Lovely stuff. And again, that's not, that doesn't really, we'll get to it, but there are some questionable drug test uh, situations that take place in 1992 as well. So yes, and more, this was, more this on this was, shortly. Yeah, th this was something that was addressed and, and you couldn't do this anymore by 1992. But again, that's, I guess that's not that shocking that, you know, wrestlers are trying to beat or try to cheat to beat cocaine tests. Oh, yeah. Uh, Schultz is uh, back and he says that Hulk broke into the wrestling business due to his access to anabolic steroids and was a black market steroid dealer. Uh, this is when Hulk was a, quote, big clumsy guy living in Pensacola. And he not only taught many of the wrestlers there how to use steroids, but he supplied them as well, as we referenced before with a Tampa pipeline. Yes. And uh, by the way, John Arezzi, obviously, uh, he didn't uh, either have lawyers or care when he was uh, you know, compared to Inside Edition, just letting them uh, <laughs> talk about Hogan as a steroid dealer. Of course, we will talk about, eh, not today, but next time, about who John Arezzi was working with at the time, because it's fascinating. Uh, you know, oh, I think yeah. most, most people know, obviously, that it was Vince Russo, but... Uh, yeah, it, it's quite humorous that Mr. Arezzi in this radio show was Vince Russo's sort of uh, path into the business. But anyway, Billy Graham, uh, he, he has another charge or uh, that the changes in Hulk's physique over the past year look like someone cycling off and on steroids. Uh, Dave noted that there were people who have acknowledged Hogan as a past steroid user who said he's been off steroids for a long time now now. I don't know shit about cycling off steroids, okay? But <laughs> I watched the TV, and there were times where Hogan looked kind of how he always had looked, I and mean, there were times where he clearly was off steroids. Yeah, or at least, if not completely off them, decreasing them, because he's still, obviously, he's still a big dude. Um, but I agree. I, I'm, I'm inclined to, to agree with Graham here. I, there are fluctuations, so I guess that would be my, my gut instinct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, Billy Graham also said that Hogan personally told him that when he started in the business, he knew so little about steroids, which kind of contradicts what we talked about earlier on, about he's the only one who knew them, the, the Schultz accusation that he was a steroid dealer. But Hogan, it's claimed by Graham that Hogan personally told him he knew so little about steroids that he injected himself once a day for an entire year. Uh, which is mortifying, and, and and as part of the recording, I uh, I took the, the quote from Graham where he said he told me he got scar tissue in his hip the size of a tennis ball from uh, repeated injections. Woo! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every day that seems excessive. Again, <laughs> yeah, slightly. I mean, I guess you want the twenty four inch pythons. There you're gonna go. But that was a good point by you that that kind of contradicts what Schultz was saying. Mm. You know, that, I mean, it's okay, you know, like... that kind of treating Hogan as the wise old sage of drug use. <laughs> yeah, that ear, he's just freaking shooting himself up every day for a year. That's crazy. Now, Graham also um, said that what Hogan has said on the subject of steroids is what he was instructed to say by the mm. higher-ups of the WWF. Meltzer, with this fantastic quote, Whomever it was that preached dishonesty to Hogan seems to have had the final word. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, that one's a bit more questionable. I do. I, I think that all kind of indications kind of point to the fact that Hogan just said what he said out of self-preservation. Yeah, he went into um, business for himself. And this is going to become a big talking point uh, as we get closer to Mania, like in March, when, you know, we joked about Dr. D, quote, coming out of mothballs. Wait until mm. Billy Jack Haynes comes out of mothballs. <laughs> Oh, he, has Billy a lot, Jack. he has a lot to say on, you know, whether or not Hogan went into business for himself on Arsenio. It's quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. Schultz also said that Vince told him personally to go see the doctor before he would be programmed with Hulk for the WF title so that he could get his arms bigger. Uh, this would be a major point of the prosecution of Vince in 94, though ultimately the government could not necessarily prove that Vince was encouraging and rewarding roided up wrestlers with pushes. Although, again... It's one of those things that's harder to prove, but easy to see. Yes, that's a good point. You know, it's funny. Like, a lot of my non-wrestling fan friends are always like, you know, they're like, well, you know, they think to the, or they hear about that Vince was on trial for steroids. They're like, well, how do you get off? Because, like, <laughs> you know, it's, like, so obvious that, like, all right. And it's just, it. you know, one day we'll get to it. The prosecution uh, was kind of outgunned in that situation, obviously. And yep. it was, as you said, harder to prove than it was to see. So, I mean, a conspiracy. They basically shot for the moon and, you know, just came up with a few stars, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, David Schultz, though, not anti-steroids. Differentiated. No. He, he seemed to be a big fan of steroids. Uh, but he said that when Hogan lived in his home, he would keep many different bottles of steroids on his then seven-year-old daughter, Jesse's dresser. Dave cannot confirm this, although the Inside Edition interview uh, where Jesse Schultz, Dave's daughter, uh, was on, she basically said the same thing. You know, I, I got to say, you can't, look, man, you can do steroids, but you can't be putting them on seven-year-olds' dressers. Next to the Barbies, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, okay, I'll, I'll put myself under the bus here, okay, Liam? I've got, <laughs> this is going to be good. I've got I've got two young girls living in the house. I don't keep my weed on their dresser. Okay? <laughs> it is safely tucked away in a spot where they are not going to find it. <laughs> oh good lord. Oh man. 
Billy Graham called for a boycott of all WWF events, television shows, merchandise, and sponsors until Hogan and McMahon came on television and told the truth to the public on... This is hilarious. On the subject of anabolic steroids and apologize for the lies. Yeah. By the way, hopefully, hopefully Square Circle Gazette listeners are not going to call for a boycott of me after <laughs> yeah. that last Dave is not into boycotts personally, he says, although he does believe the only way to get this addressed is for pressure to be put on outside companies, sponsors, licensees, television stations. Again, does this sound similar to today? It is time this issue was addressed honestly, but don't hold your breath, he says. Yeah, I mean, I always remember the one time that fans their outrage that twitter outrage was channeled and got something changed it was when they wanted to call the women's battle royal the moolah battle royal and mm. wasn't wasn't it because like everyone went to who was the sponsor gonna be snickers. like snickers yeah and yep. people like oh do you know about famous moolah and that got and that was like the only time that's really worked but yeah there's always a lot of talk obviously in the present day what are the WWE's network partners going to think about Vince McMahon, you know, and all this hush money payments, you know, is Peacock, you know, going to want the letters WWE at the top of its screen, you know, when yeah. the owner is alleged to have paid $12 million to women, we don't know. Um, but it, it's, it is funny that they were saying the same thing back uh, 30 years ago. Uh, something else they were saying 30 years ago, Liam, uh, Graham <laughs> talked about a joke going around the gyms in Southern California that Hulk Hogan vitamins come in both oral and injectable form. Dave would like to clarify that this joke is not limited to Southern California gyms because he's heard it a few times in the summer in uh, Northern California. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, Schultz wrapping up this uh, berry of accusations here. Schultz says that steroids were just the tip of the iceberg of the drug use in the WWF and distributed by Dr. George Zahorian and the other doctors were involved as well. Uh, this has been confirmed to me by numerous sources, says Meltzer, and trial evidence listed here some months back indicated that only a small percentage of sedatives Zahorian purchased were actually prescribed. Yes. So, um, And then Schultz also claims he has another Xerox of a prescription for 50 bottles of testosterone and 20 bottles of, uh, well, how do you say this one again? Decadarablin. Okay, I never know how to pronounce these steroid names. I mean, <laughs> you can see my arms. I've never done steroids, obviously. Uh, but... Uh, from another doctor who he claimed was a close personal friend of Hulk Hogan's. Dave has not seen this prescription, but he decided he should film it. The name of the doctor was familiar to Dave. And if it was that doctor, then him being a close friend of Hogan's is definitely true. Dave does not want to use the doctor's names and Schultz didn't. And Dave has not had time to check with that doctor first. So this is, I believe, you know, going back to when we started this list, mm. um, you know, one of the uh, allegations Dave didn't even want to discuss because it was so serious. Yeah, yeah. I wonder who that doctor was. I'm going to say Joel Hackett. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, the WF didn't immediately comment on all of this as they were in Florida for a set of TV tapings and they were awaiting a copy of the Arezzi show. Uh, Dave expects the WF will cast down the credibility of Graham and Schultz, but no one is contradicting what they're saying. Dave thinks it's very unfair to make Hogan the scapegoat here, and the problem is way deeper than Hogan, and he's also a very positive role model in a lot of other ways. <laughs> but, quote, unlike someone who happens to score big in a movie or suddenly comes out of nowhere and wins Wimbledon, says Dave, he, Hogan, was carefully manipulated into being a role model for the express purpose of selling merchandise. But really, the issue isn't even Hogan using steroids, it's lying about using them. That quote about being manip about manipulation is really key. Yes. We're going to talk about it more here in a little bit. 
And again, had Hogan just told the truth on Arsenio Hall, I know we're beating this in the ground. This story probably goes away quickly because people are like, oh, Hulk Hogan did steroids. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I guess he. it's disappointing, but not shocking. And, you know, people move on to the next issue of the day. But when you lie, you just dig your seat a deeper hole. Yeah, I, I absolutely. The lie, the lie is the story. It's if, if, if I, I often believed and heard a lot of people say it, and I agree. If he'd have tried to babyface himself and, and done the opposite, I think that while it would have been news for a very brief period of time, there would have been nothing else to report on. The lie is the story. They showed the Arsenio Hall clip on Inside Edition. That's the crux of this entire thing. Schultz saying, quit lying. And Graham saying, I want him to tell the truth. It's perfect soundbite fodder because the lie is the issue. He owes it to the children, says Billy Graham. You know, it's fantastic. Now, as a quick sidebar to this, it's worth mentioning that the general public's kind of negative opinion of pro wrestling at this time and when I say general public, I mean the non-wrestling fan section of the public. Obviously, the slaughter thing got them a ton of heat, as we've discussed. But culturally speaking, a few months before this, there were surveys around the public perception of sports done by the sports marketing group based in Dallas. And the Observer talks about this. And wrestling was like number 30 most popular out of 140 sports that they surveyed about. But it came in first in most hated sports. And this is in mid-91, obviously, in the fallout of the slaughter stuff. And when it comes to the future media pieces, if we talk about them much, there's a really kind of fairly consistent, insulting undertone to wrestling and what it is in general before they even address Hogan and the steroid and and, and obviously the sex scandal issues that come up. There's this, it's just a really negative vibe to... We all know that wrestling is yeah scam and it's people pretending to be athletes, but there's more to it than that. And it's, it's really like... Again, just see that the proliferation of seeing that does not help the perception in the eyes of sponsors, licensees, and things like that. No, and it's only kind of started to go away today. Mm, yeah, I feel where like I remember. God, it was it was a horse race. It might have been the Kentucky Derby. Actually, it was one of the Triple Crown races because we had it on here at the house. I remember uh, Bianca Belair and Montez Ford were there, hmm. and. Uh, Mike Tarico, who certainly, you know, has some questionable background, but uh, to say the least, but like he was like running through all the celebrities that were at the race and he he got to Bianca Montez and you could kind of still like hint this, like you could sense this note of like Sark. Oh, yeah. Mm. Pro wrestler. <laughs> and here's like these two pro wrestlers that are here, too. Like he was like it was beneath him to talk about yeah. pro wrestlers being there. But, yeah. you know, for the most part, that's gone away, but it still exists. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you saw it throughout the 90s. Remember when Lawrence, oh, yeah. Ta- when Lawrence Taylor would, you know, got the WrestleMania 11 gig? Like, they were just burying him on SportsCenter, basically, for doing it. Yep. Yep. And again, if you if you want to go back and actually watch, not just The Last Dance, but the uh, the actual series of the Bulls and the Utah Jazz in 98, when uh, Rodman and Malone are gearing up to do Bash at the Beach, the, the Bob Costas commentary just is just vicious about about pro wrestling and WCW where they're talking about how you know these two are going to be you know wrestling each other in a pro wrestling fast this Sunday I don't know why those two would lower themselves to do that yeah you know that was really because like, really they, brutal they, they did Malone and Rodman kind of got into it right yeah in yeah. one of the late games and yeah Costas like was insinuating that they were faking it to try to sell this you know disgraceful pro wrestling match fuck Bob Costas yeah well, well I believe yeah. well, that was Carl Malone's quote yeah, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Fuck Carl, Carl Costas. He did, yeah. I, I like Carl Malone. I got time for the mailman. 
Yeah. Now, now, with that said, Stoge did continue to be a hot topic away from the WWF. It wasn't just pressure on them. There was a major New York Times piece uh, on December 3rd, 1991. And this is a quote from them. The stunning domination of international swimming by East German women for nearly two decades was built upon an organized system of anabolic steroid use. A group of 20 former East German coaches confirmed this was a big deal. This got a lot of press. It got, it was, it's, if you look in the history of, of kind of big steroid stories, this is actually one of the bigger ones that gets referenced, uh, historically speaking now. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just say, I've already, you know, displayed my questionable humor enough times on this program. <laughs> I will leave the East German women alone. Yeah. Uh, now, this is from Scott Keith, I think, isn't it? This next quote that you no, it wasn't. Here? So, so, I, so some of this stuff that I picked up, I actually got from a Keith uh, recap of the Observer. Oh, but okay. I actually found this um, that Meltzer had talked about this, particularly uh, going to your homeland uh, yes. and what could be done. But no, Meltzer talked. I think the first part of this is sort of a summation from Scott Keith. But no, Meltzer re- reported, you know, about going to England and what the boys were doing at the time. So it's sort of, it's half Scott Keith, half Meltzer, this next. Okay, so take that for what it's worth, folks. Of course, they say, the largest steroid problem is not the scandal itself, but what the long-term effects of massive amounts of steroids can have on someone. Uh, Wrestlers believe that side effects are exaggerated, and doctors have been lying to them for years, mostly because the people who trained the doctors lied to the doctors for years, uh, which is a whole big separate story. Uh, Also, steroids were legal for years, at least in most states, uh, all through the boom period, so everyone today thinks it's basically their right to inflate themselves like a helium balloon. Uh, In fact, at this point, and this is in obviously beginning of 92, you can still go to England and buy Prima Bolan over the counter, which is what everyone was doing during the recent UK tour. And don't look at me, Kyle Ross. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. So, yeah, there you go with that. And th- this is another thing here that I want to get into. And far be it for me to cast, you know, you know, pl- play the moral card on anybody. <laughs> but the public does have a right to know about the product that they're consuming, right? In this case, WWF, uh, especially if it's a product that's being marketed to children, and the biggest hero is perhaps both lying and abusing illegal drugs. And that is certainly the crux of the argument made by... Phil Mushnick, who's yes. back, <laughs> of yeah. the New York Post, writes a blistering story entitled Rastlin' and Steroids, uh, which begins with these three fabulous quotes. The World Wrestling Federation is wholesome family entertainment, says WF uh, President Vincent Mann Jr. I'm sure he I love that. how he threw <laughs> Take that, Vinny. Quote number two. Hulk Hogan always tells kids to say their prayers and take their vitamins. The local joke was, what kind of vitamins? Oils or injectables, says former WF champ superstar Billy Graham. And quote number three from Dr. D, who's back in. Steroids in the WWF are the tip of the iceberg. There's cocaine, marijuana, heroin, crack cocaine. It's a walk-in drugstore. What a place to work. Yeah, really? Wow. I mean, you know, sign me up or no? I don't know. (laughs) Shorts claimed in the story by uh, by Phil Mushnick that he received six threatening calls from the WWF after his appearance on Inside Edition, but said, if they want to harm me, they know where I live, where I walk the street, and if they don't know, they can get in touch with me and I'll meet them. Not like the WWF TV gun show Vincent Mann put me on to make me look stupid. I'm an expert shot. I carry a Mac fully automatic. I carry around 150 rounds on me at all times. Seems excessive. Sir, if, if I may say. 
Yeah, I, so carrying 150 rounds in all time, is that more excessive than Hogan allegedly shooting himself up every day with steroids <laughs> for a year? What an industry this is. And I mean, t- this Dr. D, man, <laughs> he's a character. He was. And it, it, of course, turns out he would become a bounty hunter. Yep. Uh, 150 apparently. rounds. How many people did you think were going to come for him? I know. Um, now, uh, <laughs> we'll get to what Steve Planet has said in a bit about that, because that's oh, incredible. God. But allegations are made by Graham. This is certainly one uh, too, that Vince McMahon is apparently somehow connected with the mafia, which Meltzer <laughs> does not believe. Uh, the story also alleges uh, this is much story that the FBI is investigating Vince personally for steroid distribution, which Dave can neither confirm or deny since that agency does not comment on their investigations. Well, <laughs> that ends up being dead on accurate. Yes, it does. But more, uh, more so than that mafia connection. Yes, but, uh, you know, obviously it would take uh, more than a year for um, Vince to get indicted. I believe it's yes. November of 93. Mm-hmm. Yeah, takes a good while. Now, WWF's PR rep, Fucking Steve Planamenta, who whose name will come up, I'm sure, several times at this 92 section, responded to all of this by saying he hasn't had a chance to talk to Vince on this subject, but he feels like Graham is just saying all this stuff because Titan wouldn't settle with him to get rid of his lawsuit, and Schultz is looking to sell a book. In regards to the threatening phone calls, Planamenta said, neither of them, Graham or Schultz, are that important to us. At some point, <laughs> I know, what a blow. <laughs> At some point, Hawk is going to speak to the issue. I am not Hawk, says Planamenta. I can't speak for him. I didn't tell him what to say. I don't know what anyone here told him what to say, no matter what Billy Graham claims. So, already you got to see the suits kind of try to distance themselves and paint this picture that Hogan may have gone into business for himself. That, again, is something we're going to examine moving on. Now... (laughs) Steve Planamenta blowing off the David Schultz accusations about threatening phone calls by saying neither he or Graham are, quote, that important to us is quite a doozy. But this made me just laugh out loud when I grabbed it. And again, this was something that we got not from that time period, but from a 2004 observer. Meltzer wrote, fewer aware of this during this period. McMahon attempted to reach out to Graham and settle things, but did not want to deal with lawyers. Graham wouldn't talk to McMahon at the time, feeling all talking should go through his lawyers, who McMahon wasn't willing to deal with. Graham had also sued the companies that manufactured the steroids. After a deposition where McMahon's attorney, Jerry McDevitt, had done his usual job on Graham, McDevitt conceded that he also liked Graham and thought (laughs) Graham was entitled to a settlement but from the drug companies and not the WWF. He <laughs> even said that if the circumstances had been different, McDevitt would have loved to have represented Graham in that case. Good God, Kyle. <laughs> I mean, it's, what a freak. I mean, this, is this better Cole Soul? That he just <laughs> <laughs> jumping sides and jumping to the winning team here? It, it reminds me of when, like, you know, when Gustavo Fring, like, sides with Walter, not Jesse, and all of a sudden Saul gets up. And he's like, oh, I'm your lawyer again. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, as, and as we go through 1992, time will not be kind to the ethics of, and, and standards of Mr. McDevitt, I feel. No, um, but it, he gets his job done, you know, if you ever get in trouble, you know. Oh, yeah, he's the first guy to call. 
Yeah. It really is. Uh, now, it should be noted that at the time, the WF was pushing the new WBF magazine on its syndicated TV with the cover story of why big guys get all the girls to an audience largely made up of children and teenagers. Uh, Mushnick's article said that of the estimated 1 million steroid users in this country, nearly half of them are high school age or younger, which is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, but not really so- when you think about the athletic nature. I mean, for, for me, it's especially mind-blowing because athletics isn't as big of a deal in this country as it is in America to the school system, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, and that goes kind of back to what you said at the start about why this, you know, this was something that was unique to the time period because people didn't really understand stories. And then like when it came out that it was so many young people using it, that just made it like a bigger red yeah. flag and whatnot. Now, let's just keep the heavyweight quotes going here. <laughs> You've been waiting weeks, nay months for this. Yes. Hulk, right in front of me, offered co- offered me cocaine. And I said, well, I just really don't feel like I need to start doing cocaine. And he, Hulk, said, good, you're smart, because cocaine is the worst drug you could ever imagine to get off of. And then he proceeded to shove cocaine up his nose right in front of me in 1983. This is Billy Graham on the Russell Radio Show on WNNZ in Springfield, Mass., uh, on January 18th, I believe. Was this the same night as this house show we're going to talk about later? <laughs> it might have been, actually, yeah. It, it was around that time. <laughs> were they like, oh, by the way, WF's coming tonight. Let's get Billy Graham to tell old cocaine stories about <laughs> Hulk Hogan. So, look, Liam, here's, here's the thing. There have been a lot of terrible <laughs> quotes attributed to Hulk Hogan through the years. Uh, this is absolutely not one of them. I think this may be <laughs> I'm telling you, man, like, I always, like... Whenever I get on an airplane, even still today, like this quote's like in my mind. Like I just like I'm at, like looking around and I'm just like, God, are there like any just wrestlers just like just, you know, tooting some cane in their seats back then? Because um, <laughs> so the story in question took place uh, in the AWA days. Obviously, it was 83. Um, and Dave was given four names by Graham, two of which corroborated it. Uh, I should now make a joke. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if Greg Gagne was willing to go on the record and say him and Vern invented cocaine because they, <laughs> you know, invented everything. They'll take credit for anything. So who knows? Not sure if that was talked about, but uh, I, I do want to go back to the earlier quote about manipulation, like how Hogan, you know, mm-hmm. the key here is he's been, he's being manipulated uh, into, you know, a hero for children with the express purpose of selling merchandise. Um, and I want to make a, bizarre comparison to Bob, the recently deceased Bob Saget? Yeah, go for it. I was, in, you, I was, I was intrigued with where this is going. Okay, do you have any idea where I might go with this? I, uh, this, this could be batshit insane. Uh, you know what? I really don't. Okay, so Bob Saget obviously used to host a show called America's Funniest Home Videos. Did you guys like ever get this or anything? We, we had a similar thing called You've Been Framed, but it's usually videos of, of dogs falling over and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, so this was like a popular show in prime time, and it was watched by mostly families, okay? Yeah. Bob Saget did a lot of cocaine during that time. Uh, he did, yes. Like, and by, like, by his own admission. And, I mean, I guess, like, no one was, you know, there was not a line of America's Funniest Home Video vitamins. Um, I'm sure maybe there were some T-shirts they would give away. But, like, I, I, just, I was just thinking, like, Hogan is far from the first or only person who's like the hero in a like a show primarily watched by children that did drugs no not at all. and is it 
I mean, I, I, no one should weep for Hogan. Um, but, like, I mean, do you think it's, like, kind of, like, you know, Dave talked about how it was kind of unfair, how he's being made the scapegoat. And we've talked about that a little bit. Do, do you kind of get that? I mean, again, it's hard to feel bad for him. But do you kind of get that feeling that's, like, everything that's being piled on him isn't just unique to Hulk Hogan it's, or, or wrestling. It, we see it with in other walks of life. There's lots of people, you know, who did children's shows that, quite frankly, did cocaine. Not necessarily yeah. steroids, though. And, and that's uh, there, there is a lot to that. And, and and again, I am not trust me, I am not Hogan fan, but I do see and believe me, I'm also the last person who will stand up for WWE these days. <laughs> but having said that, there is there is absolutely an element to this of some of the people that are coming out and being the public face of this, really kind of going after Hogan specifically knowing that's what's going to have the most impact. Yes. They're not necessarily interested in solving the problem. They're interested in ratings and selling newspapers. Yeah, the Inside Edition, while it mentions a lot of the other stuff, it really is focused primarily on Hogan and the lie, and and, and the, the, you know, the, the talking is about that. So, yeah, again, no sympathy for him, but at the same time, there is two sides to the story in the sense that, you know, Billy Graham did not like the WWF very much at this time. And, and, and to, nor did Dr. D. And to pretend they didn't, and that doesn't play some kind of role in this. These are not just two neutral parties who are just completely outraged by Terry Burleigh's personal conduct. This is, they do not like the WWF. Uh, Hogan has done stuff that wasn't legal and not particularly uh, good and did lie publicly. Um, but there you are. So yeah, and, and, and nothing they're saying is wrong. I mean, yeah, no, no. talk about the acts of I mean, Schultz, as we've said, I mean, no one is really refuting these things. They're trying to, you know, oh, oh, well, he like, you know, he's trying to sell a book or he just wants to sell his lawsuit. And th that's the angle they're going. No one is saying, oh, that's a lie. I mean, no, I mean, this Hogan cocaine story in the airplane. I mean, Meltzer found two people who corroborated like five minutes, it sounded like. And it should be noted, Schultz had previously gone public with cocaine allegations toward Hogan. Yeah, and that's interesting too. Is I always, you know, I always again maybe because of the journalism background, but one of the things that you get that I was personally taught was that when you see things like press releases and you see things like public statements from companies, don't just look at what's there, look at what's not. And it's interesting how Steve Planamenta felt it was more valuable to take the time to mention that Hulk Hogan said what Hulk Hogan wanted to say but did not decide to really get into the argument about what he has and hasn't done. And yes. I think that's kind of, I, that, that was a, a, again, a red flag for a lot of this, I guess, is the fact that they're not putting up a fight particularly. No, no. And, and, and the other thing is, and it, man, it, it's crazy. Cause I already started like looking through the notes for March when mm. shit hits the fan. Like Hogan just doesn't talk publicly. No. Like he just is, you know, I mean, the guy was all over the place promoting Suburban Commando, lying yeah. his ass off, and then he gets <laughs> caught lying, and he just, like, goes in a hole. Goes in a hole, and the only time you get a public statement is the one on WFTV when Vince interviews him, and that's it. <laughs> yes, and that is a total, that is what I was referring to, a total rally the base move back in 92. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Now, of course, more interviews with superstar Billy Graham are forthcoming. 2020, you're going to do a piece. The LA Times, more stories on Hogan. Uh, Graham is actually falling into a deep depression as a result of steroid withdrawal and his bone degeneration. Uh, also, probably in deep depression, the WWF is trying to just lay low and hope the story goes away. The advertising industry is pretty much declaring Hogan hands off at this point. Though, and this was jarring to me, as I'm sure it was to you watching the TV, on Superstars, the commercials for Right Guard, mm. starring Hogan, and Hulk Hogan Vitamins, those oral and injectable, uh, <laughs> they they continue to appear. I, I'm yeah. assuming that our guy, you know, that we watch it from, you know, he deliberately put those in because, you know, if you're, I mean, everyone who is familiar with WF knows what was going on at this point, but that's crazy that they're still showing that stuff. Yeah, and that's, he's, he's still the face of right guard, including the line that he would later use in some of his NWO promos. Actually, he did quite a few times the uh, anything less would be uncivilized or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I hated when he would use that as Hollywood Hogan. He, I was like, he, I think he thought he was being cool, like <laughs> alongside Hall and Mash, but it always was like so bad. Yeah, that's kind of the general rule for that first, especially the, for the first couple of months of Hogan in the NWO, where he just, he's like the Pink Panther. <laughs> like, yeah. He's like wreaking havoc. He's like a villain that will wreak havoc on the Pink Panther. Um, by the way, Dr. Jules Zahorian began his three-year prison term. Congratulations on January 31st. Sentenced on 12 counts of steroid trafficking, three years in prison, a total of 24 years probation, a $12,000 fine, and forfeiting half of his $3.7 million condo. Uh, the government is basically treating this as a warning to anyone else who calls themselves a doctor and distributes steroids. But there's a mind-blowing fact <laughs> you had here, Kyle. George Sahorian is apparently back as a practicing physician today. Yeah. We, we, we looked it up. I mean, I, I have not visited the man, but... Yeah. but there is a Dr. George T. Zahorian urology, yeah. 21 years experience that, um, you know, is available that, uh, on, you know, that we found a biography for. That's insane to me. He's back. I mean, I, I think this is right. Now, Dr. Zahorian does not have any patient reviews. So I don't maybe this is all I don't know that this is what you know, this is something I got from Scott Keith. He eats and I looked at this. So I started looking up and yeah, I, I don't know. Hey, apparently he he's back. I, I just <laughs> that 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 blows my mind. Like, can you imagine going to see this guy for urology? Oh, aren't you the guy who gave all the WWE wrestlers all those steroids? <laughs> what if you still got that picture of him and Vincent Hogan on the wall? Yeah, that would be incredible. Oh yes. yeah, George. Uh, dude, I don't know. It just seems like like so. It's George Tizahorian the third is recognized by. Yeah. 2021, George Zito is recognized by Continental Who's Who as a top urologist for his exemplary contributions to the medical field as an outstanding dedication at Kokoa Urology Associates. Turn it all around. Yeah, dude, this has got to be him. Followed by, uh, you know, uh, Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in 75, followed by completing his residency at the Allentown Center of Osteopathic Surgery. The Yeah, his residency in Allentown. Let's talk about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. He so, is uh, one, sir. He, he, got, he has been the recipient of several awards and honors, including Compassionate Doctor Recognition in 2014, Patient's <laughs> Choice Award in 2014-2017. Yeah, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, yeah, the Patient's Choice Award. Who was voting on that? And then the On-Time Doctor Award in 2024. So I've seen, um, oh, my God. Dr. Zahorian hones in on his creativity and enjoys decorating his office for the holidays in his spare time. I am not making any of this up. This is a PR Newswire release. Yeah. Well, decorations made of suspiciously shredded documents, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, decorating is on. Yeah. Yeah, so so listeners, if you, if you need to, you know, put a little bit of muscle mass, I guess. Yeah, there's your guy right there. He's, he's he's still back with the pad. Yeah, that is incredible to me. The, the U.S. healthcare system, Liam. What a freaking debacle that is. <laughs> now, we're still in the month of January here, and Meltzer finds speculation that this will be the end of Hulk Hogan and Titan Sports to be premature. Uh, there are people talking about Hogan retiring from wrestling after WrestleMania, but before any of this happened, Hogan was planning on taking off after WrestleMania through to SummerSlam anyway. So if he disappears at that time, that was agreed upon well before any of this broke. Thus far, neither Hogan nor Titan uh, have felt any financial effects that I know of from any of these statements. It hasn't affected house show attendance, television ratings, it won't affect Sunday's pay-per-view buy rate, obviously referring to the Royal Rumble, nor has it affected merchandising sales. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it, then it was, like you said, still in January. Yes, that was yeah, true. But uh, as the year goes on, that uh, is, is simply not the case. It affects yeah. everything. Things are rarely that immediate. Now, Planamenta, our boy, uh, would not confirm that a second round of steroid testing may have taken place at the Daytona Beach tapings on January 7th, because it didn't. Uh, to the surprise of no one, there were no suspensions or noticeable changes in the size of the bodies. Now, would Vince be the one person with the guts to fire 40 people and rebuild the roster from scratch as he claimed, asked Dave Meltzer? Probably not. Uh, the answer seems to be throwing someone stupid enough to fail a test under the bus as a scapegoat, but that's a short-term solution, and believe me, there's no shortage of candidates for those scapegoats. <laughs> yeah, this yeah, real rogues gallery that we'll get to. I Fuck mean, now, I mean, just... since, yeah, I mean, I think the dumbest of the dumb were the first to go. But uh, so as we do get to the rumble, which by the way we're going to talk about, guys, more fun stuff to come where we're actually going to break down the in-ring product. Oh yeah, uh, in Albany, and uh, you know, I I think there's a lot of listeners out there who know my feelings on the '92 Rumble. But at that show, Dave surmised that about half the guys were in the middle of some kind kind of steroid cycle and usage looks to have increased now <laughs> for the Saturday night's main event taping in Lubbock. This comes early February. There was a second round of testing and it was reflected in the bodies. Now, this is an all time Meltzer line here. <laughs> Duggan was noticeably fatter, although that could just as easily have absolutely nothing to do with steroids. <laughs> Body shaming from Dave. <laughs> yeah. And then at the Tampa tapings, which come later, mid-February, uh, Dave notes everyone was twice as roided as Daytona Beach, <laughs> and amazingly no one has been suspended under their supposed super strict industry-leading steroid policy. But as we're going to get into later on, that would change. Uh, yeah. Tipped off in Lubbock, we think? I would say so. Okay. okay. Um, that was, of course, uh, Saturday's main event. Right, yep. that taping. So, you know, they're going to be on national television. Again, we'll get to the in-ring there. But I want to get to something here. We have usually use Meltzer as our source material. But I got the access to uh, the torches at ProSig Torch in 92 and Wade Keller. And I read this to you when we were going over the show oh, yeah. beforehand. And I, I was reading it. And, and God bless Wade. But I, did, I, I wonder, did he really think this was going to happen? So... <laughs> um. 
this is the uh, his comments from an editorial in the January 15th, 92 torch. This is only the beginning. Steroid accusations against Hogan will lead to major changes, said Wade. And this is the end of this column. Then come 93 or 94 or 95 at the latest pro wrestling, as we know, it will be pro wrestling as we know it will be totally different. The only way for it to survive is to return to having wrestlers with skill and not necessarily muscles on top. The days of Terry Funk, Nick Bockwinkle, Dory Funk Jr., Ted DiBiase, and even Dusty Rhodes will return. Charisma, interview ability, and skill will replace the hollow notion that muscle mass draws fans. Steroid tests won't be the answer. Steroid tests won't even be needed. Pro wrestlers in a few (laughs) years would make a wish no longer welcomes Hogan's visits will have no desire to take steroids. They will lift weights in order to make themselves fit and strong, but not freakish. With no reward for looking freakish, wrestlers will not waste their money on dangerous, illegal steroids. Then maybe, just maybe, the major promotions will support regional independent wrestling, funding it much like Major League Baseball sponsors minor league teams. And wrestlers will be better, and wrestling will be a lot more fun to watch and read about. So for now... Put up with all this steroid talk. Learn about it. The more you know and the more you and I demand from promoters, the more they will have to respect their customers and give them what they want. Quality, drug-free wrestling. (laughs) Uh, The first time you read this to me, I could not believe the optimism for Mr. Wade Keller. Yeah. That said, at least he's somewhat accurate in the fact that Bret Hart... (laughs) got a push and Shawn michaels and sean got a push oh, i guess that's that was the, the the one part of that that ended up being somewhat true when he's referencing the Bockwinkles, <laughs> the dbrs and stuff like that but man what a dreamer what a dreamer yeah imagine wrestlers never turning to steroids again and the funny thing some of the stuff he says does happen the problem is it's like the absolute biggest down period in the history of this industry and Vince McMahon can't wait to just basically undo all the rules he has in place to get back to making money and yeah I mean they undo basically the second that they stop testing for steroids well all the wrestlers go back to it so yeah it didn't quite work out the way Wade uh, theorized it might there's that period in like 95 96 when you know plenty of people in WCW are just very obviously on the gas and yeah, that, no. that was the thing. Like, you And know, Vince the, is probably hating his roster at the time because it wasn't what his vision of wrestling was. And then October 96, it all goes away. And, you know, it's funny. You know, you fast forward to today, Liam, 2022. What's like, maybe not the biggest discussion on Twitter, but it's one that you see a lot, you know, surrounding Adam Cole. Oh, oh. Adam Cole's too small. Yeah, yeah he, he, that does, he doesn't look like a wrestler. And granted, the wrestlers today on average are smaller than probably they've ever been, right? Yeah, I'd say so. On a national level, but, you know, what is the general public? The general public's not like, oh, this is such fine, drug-free entertainment now. They're like, why aren't the my, my wife, who knew nothing about wrestling, I've told this many times, the story on many podcasts, she, like, once asked me, like, why aren't the wrestlers big like they used to be? <laughs> That's what people Well, think. yeah. Yeah. So do we have any more thoughts on this portion of the program? I, I, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering it. I think that we are at the point now, and it's interesting, again, the parallels to today. That, that kind of is the thing that kind of stands out the most when you look, when you look at this with 2022 eyes as we record this on July 11th. Um, but you can see, and it, it, it's, it's funny because 
it's very easy, obviously, with all the all these years of hindsight to say, well, you can kind of see it coming. What's going to happen? The 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 negative, yeah, that the. But to be honest, it's not really particularly unpredictable, and I'm guessing that's the reason why they don't say anything, because they can. Yeah, I don't know if they can see it coming or if they just are in denial. But the fact that this is going to be a big deal and it's probably not going to go away. Um, and it's just that, again, it, it, these things seem to snowball. And when you've got our skeletons in the closet, they were probably thinking, if we just shut up and let this thing go away, then it won't get worse than it is. And, well, <laughs> and the, well, the key is here, as we move to the wrestling side, that I, I think they were hoping, okay, this is bad, but hopefully nothing else comes out. And the yeah. big problem is something else, and we're going to get to it at the end, we're going to tease it for our next episode, there's a whole nother can of worms that comes out. Do you? Let me ask you this. Eh, we'll save that for the end. We'll save that for the end. Oh, lovely, 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 lovely. Oh, we'll, we'll save that. Eh, you know, cause I might forget, though. And I hate when I tease things and forget. If the sex scandal doesn't happen, does this just blow over? Hmm, that's very hard to call because I wonder. Mm. <sighs> that's a great question. I don't know that I can answer that. Because that's obviously the worst of the bunch, right? Like, oh, yeah. Stri- like strike one is the Persian Gulf War exploitation. Strike two is steroids and the denial. And then strike three is the, is the sex scandal with the underage dream boys. Yeah, I'm not sure that it goes. I mean, to be honest, it probably would go away because these things do have a lifespan you know, these stories, and there wasn't really much more to be said unless there is a reaction and a response, and that's part of the reason why it's don't don't give them anything is, is kind of the, the, the party line here. Don't say anything, because if, 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 you, if you do, or if you take any action or anything like that, then there's a response, then there's coverage, then there's this is the latest, and they didn't want that. They wanted this to just go away, and yep. the floodgates are open. Yeah, although the only thing is the sex scandals, obviously, while they're tied in and they make the WWF just look worse, that's not related to Hulk Hogan. No, obviously. and that's and, and and there's less power because of that. Yeah, so but Hulk Hogan is still going to go. I mean, well, he was going to go away after WrestleMania, regardless. Mm-hmm. But I mean, did, does he maybe come back early if the sex scandal earlier if the sex or, or I mean, because that again, that didn't really affect him. I guess I mean for him. His reputation becomes in tatters purely because of this. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see. Um, the media coverage for sure wouldn't have been as intense because it, it ramps up to an all-time level in March once the sex scandal breaks. But uh, that's a different podcast for a different day, isn't it, Liam? It sure is. No, I was just going to say, yes, amidst the chaos, there is a shining light here to speak. Of. There is indeed the Royal Rumble 1992, Kyle. Yes, and now... <laughs> We're going to kind of switch roles here on the podcast. This is a, a very long-standing world tradition where the American comes in and starts to try to take the lead on something. So hopefully, um, <laughs> hopefully this doesn't go like everything else in world history where this goes to shit. It's not as good as it was before. Uh, that's really my hope. But yeah, so I did the notes and I'm going to be firing off a lot of things to you here because I want to hear what you Please had to do. say about a lot of that. So yes, the 1992 Royal Rumble. And before we get there, the usual interviews air in the final weeks leading up to the event everyone talking about how they're going to win the vacant wwf title and i know it's beating a dead horse at this point liam but these short and to the point interviews where everyone is just hammering home the idea that this is their shot and 
I'm going to be the new WWF champion. It just made the Rumble match seem so much more special than, say, almost anything today. Yeah. yeah. You know, Flair cuts a good one on the funeral parlor. Hogan cuts one where he basically runs through all the major programs of his WWF run. Zeus omitted, though. I made sure to note that. Um, <laughs> I know you've caught this in your notes as well. But uh, Hogan also refers to himself in this interview as Don Corleone and essentially infers <laughs> that he's willing to murder both Flair and The Undertaker to win the 92 Rumbles. So, I mean, if that doesn't get you to buy, what will? Yeah, that... <laughs> This, this, this series of promos uh, that obviously airs repeatedly on the on the various television shows, they're always great. They're short to the point. Virgil told me to bet on him during his promo, which I think I could probably find a better use of my money, frankly. Yeah, um, as, a, as a sports handicapper, I'm going to tell you right now, betting on Virgil <laughs> in 1992 is a real bankroll-busting move there, man. You're going <laughs> to be out a lot of cash if you're betting on Virgil on pay-per-view in 92. Yeah, Hogan outright says he's been given the green light to do whatever it takes to get the belt back. Keep this in mind uh, for later. And in a later promo with Gene, which is the one that we're talking about, which is a very kind of bizarre kind of career retrospective where they're showing clips of like past triumphs and tragedies, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. Zeus omitted, uses the line, I don't care if it's Randy Savage. I don't care if it's Sid Justice. Um, and there's a couple of times in these promos where he just has a weird line. He keeps saying about how the rumble and the chance to get the belt back is his chance to finally get the world, the whole world, to see things the Hulkamania way. As if there's a conflict for the first time on the way the world sees things yeah, regarding like, to Hulk Hogan. And that him winning the Rumble is going to magically make these uh, scandals go away. <laughs> yeah. like, good luck with that, Terry. But They believed it. They believed yeah. it. But, you know, it goes back to, I think, something we've been talking about previously that we're seeing Hulkamania uh, as a concept discussed not just in the present tense, the way it always had been, but as this, you know, eight-year entity, basically. They're yeah. leaning a lot more into the past, and, and I wonder if that's on purpose because they're trying to, oh, remember those warm, fuzzy feelings you have yes, with the Hulkster? I, I think that's what it is. It's like, you know, yeah, he's had some rocky times recently, but, you know, but by God, this man, you grew up with this man. Yeah. <laughs> Don't turn on yeah. him now. Yeah, so. if if he can win the Rumble, he'll make Hulkamania great again. Yeah. Oh boy. Now, also, oh, yeah, oh, go ahead. You, you no, I'll say you caught something that was great. Yeah. Oh yeah, the fantastic run of form of Bobby Heenan, the great Bobby Heenan, on primetime wrestling during this period of time, the build towards the Royal Rumble. Uh, without going into the whole thing, YouTubing the phrase "trouble in the Heenan camp" for those unfamiliar with this period of time will give you a glimpse. But. The back and forth, and I kind of like that format of primetime where it's Vince at the helm with Gorilla and Bobby on, on opp yeah, opposing sides debating what's going on. Perfect there to kind of back up here and then some scrub like Duggan or Slick or someone, or you know, Lord Al, kind of is the, the real fifth wheel on this this, this camper van. But the, the, the kind of turmoil about whether or not Heenan tried to stick it to perfect and, and, and Vince and, and uh, Monsoon stirring the shit, it's tremendous, and it's just Heenan at his best. And again, I just love the format of these shows where they just talk about every aspect that they talk about the Rumble and what could happen. Could the Nasty Boys end up fighting each other? You know what? You know what could happen? What could happen? The the, the, the one thing that I would say is a criticism for AEW is not enough of that. The, the the ability to kind of contextualize what we're seeing, and Heenan 
is just so fantastic in that role. So that is something worth going out of your way to see. If you want to see anything from this build-up, uh, Heenan just is brilliant. Yeah, and so I had not seen this before, and you put it in the notes, so I went and checked it out like yesterday. And I was <laughs> taken aback that they were teasing tension in the Heenan camp yep. between Perfect and Heenan and Flair so early. I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's something that they actually do over the next couple months and then completely abandon. They drop it. Yeah, it's like they didn't expect him to be out so long. Yeah, well, you know, there there is a note, you know, in a later Observer that, you know, actually it's interesting that you mention that because they start teasing this and then there's a note in the Observer, well, expect Perfect to be out until at least October. And yeah. that's around when they drop it. So you're right. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they're like, oh, they were hoping he could go like after Mania um, and and then they realized he couldn't and they're like, all right, well, we'll just put this on ice. But yeah, so it, it reminded me a lot, obviously, of the angle, the 11th hour angle they did right before Survivor Series. Yeah. When that weasel. Yeah. When Perfect uh, turns babyface to replace, uh, you know, the fired Ultimate Warrior. Yes, the fired Ultimate Warrior again, because he's going to be rehired very shortly, isn't he, Liam? <laughs> but yeah, the, the, this was... Uh, I like this format, too, of primetime a lot better, certainly than that, you know, hideous studio audience with Vince wearing Zubaz or whatever. And we should make notes here because I don't know if there's another time we'll bring it up. The Reverend Slick, yes, was the fifth wheel on this particular show. Slick is a baby face as he was actually he had actually taken time off. I think we mentioned this to become a reverend. And, yeah, he's back on as a baby face character on the TV, a rather hideous (laughs) character, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, I know that some people like when he taught Kamala how to bowl, but that's not a great contribution for about two years of Reverend Slick as a babyface. Yeah, I mean, keep it on Coliseum video. I mean, you know, you are a man. I mean, that's not good. <laughs> Meltzer says, and let's bring it up, Ric Flair became the first man ever to actually win both the WWF and NWA world titles on Sunday, January 19th, to highlight the Royal Rumble pay-per-view show from Albany, New York. The show, which drew a legit full house of 17,000 fans, was designed to be, and turned out to be, Flair's one-man performance, coming into the Rumble at the two-minute mark and being there until the end came one hour and two seconds later. As Battle Royals go, this was overall one of the better ones I've ever seen because there were several storylines to stay interested in instead of just being mumbo-jumbo brawling without any purpose. They also couldn't have put Flair over any bigger as a worthy champion. Despite that, Meltzer only gave it three and three-quarter stars while Wade gives it four and three-quarters. So, again, the old star ratings... (laughs) Yeah, the, again, wow, me higher than Dave Meltzer in WWF wrestling. You you you, you love to see it, I guess, or, but uh, you don't see it now in 2022 a lot. So just, that, just it, it, this is absurd. This is an absurd thing to say. Mm-hmm. But it's worth noting, Dave Meltzer gave this quarter of a star more than the women's money in the bank match. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> that, that, you know, I... I, you know, I look at that rating. I'm not really happy about it, to be honest with you. I was just going to let it slide and move on. But then you had to say that. <laughs> if you think the 1992 Royal Rumble is only just a, you know, a hair better than the 2022 women's money in the bank match, I don't know what to say, man. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, star power? Performance? I, what? 
Oh, oh God, man. I feel I feel nauseous right now, Liam. Why would you say something like that? Although, again, it's very true. I can't deny it. You know, <laughs> I'm like Steve Planamenta. I can't say you're lying. You know, so yeah. but, um, let's go right. back to the happy memory, shall we? Yes, let's make let's let's please just cleanse our palate from the women's money in the bank match in 2022. That that, that just business exposing sham because <laughs> this is what I have to say about at least they had trouble. fun. Yes, at, at least they had fun. Yeah, imagine if they said did. that. At least they imagine if they said that after the '92 Rumble. Oh well, at least we had fun because we'll get the buy rate. <laughs> But so that I had fun. And this is something I wrote on the Top Rope Nation Facebook page uh, earlier this year when we were going through the history of the Royal Rumble. Okay, you ready? Per the Gregorian calendar, the decade known as the 1980s came to an official end on December 31st, 1980 or 1989. Yeah, uh, that's inarguable, Liam. You, you, you can't. No arguments. So, okay, you can't say the 1980s. To, yes, very much came to an end on that date. But in the case of professional wrestling, and I do stress professional uh, it, wrestling. I will argue that the 1980s came to an unofficial end on January 19th, 1992. For it was on this particular afternoon that 30 of your childhood favorites got together one last time to compete for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. And how ironic it was to see in a WWF ring the longtime stalwart of the competition outshining all of Vince McMahon's creations. Rick fucking Flair in perhaps the greatest 60-minute effort of his or any other career, won the title in a means never previously reserved for a heel. He doesn't really cheat. He was just simply better. And that is my take on the 1992 Royal Rumble. And I, you know, a lot of people who obviously are listening to this and are fans of Top Rope Nation know my take on the 92 Rumble. We did a deep dive on it. It is one of my favorite WWF matches of all time. So I'm going to throw this to you, Mr. O'Rourke. This is obviously the greatest Rumble ever by far right. And what do you think about it being the unofficial end of the 80s WWF? Boom, period. Yeah, so my thoughts. 92 fairly obviously takes the gold by some distance. There's no argument to be had other than being contrarian for the sake of it. I know some people like to do that. Um, but I do not think there is any justifiable reason uh to deter from that frame of mind and there's just so many aspects you mentioned the 80s thing which is it's a very interesting theory because there are a lot of things in this match that you cannot fathom actually happening at any point during hogan's run previously um and so that unofficial end of the 80s thing is actually a pretty awesome way of looking at this because it, it kind of is again it's in new york it's in the knickerbocker arena in new york flair and, and again i think that so much of the people and it, it's maybe this will happen over time but some of the people who want to be contrarian for the sake of it and say the 1992 royal rumble if you just look at it at face value oh it's not as good as this for action or whatever are missing how significant it is that Flair got to be Flair in a way that hadn't been done before. He got to win as a heel in the way he won. And the all-around performance, I'm a huge believer that it's not just, obviously, it's the entire presentation, the entire production. The commentary is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. The star power is fantastic. 
You said 30 of our favourites. I'll say 29 in Skinner, as I said to you previously. <laughs> yes. Skinner is Skinner never a favourite of mine. Uh, I can <laughs> I can probably put Colonel Mustafa and about three of the scrubs in there. Okay, true. But Repo point, man. Yeah. Repo, but the points taken. The points Nikolai taken. Volkov. Yeah, Volkov. Who didn't last long, did he? No, he um, didn't. Sometimes and, um, those Lithuanians. <laughs> Yeah, no, too bad is what he did said. Too, too bad. bad, too bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's just so much that's great about this match. We could talk about it all day. But I absolutely, I, it is the it is the best Rumble ever. I don't think it can be beaten, frankly, because of, of all the elements in the equation that are unique to this time and place and set of circumstances I can't really see being duplicated again. I don't think we ever, I, I, no, I genuinely don't think we're ever going to see a Royal Rumble as good as this. No, I don't either. And I'm biased towards it, but it's look, it's got the best for it's a bad the Royal Rumble is a just, you know, battle royal, pardon the pun, on steroids, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's just a souped up battle royal. And to make it work, you have to have star power. We look at the one that just happened earlier this year. It yeah. was just like people were coming out and the number of comments this was, I thought, striking because, you know, now they play the entrance music, but people really didn't know who was coming out. Even oh, I thought that was telling. Music. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they don't have the kind of roster depth or number of stars over to matches. And it's not, it's also, it's because it's Ric Flair and that he was the stalwart of the competition for so long. He comes in and in a Ric Flair manner is so clearly the best person in this match, even to a lay person. I remember in college, I put this match on. Once in my room, and a couple of roommates were watching. They, they don't know a ton about wrestling, quite frankly. And they were like engrossed by this. Yeah. And I remember that was the moment when I like saw they were like really into it. And like, you know, people would say, oh, you know, what would you show a non fan or something like that? And, and this is on the short list. Wow. And especially in terms of a long match for me, because that it was like an eye opening experience because I it was people who, you know, I think most of the general public. You know, they know Ric Flair, but they know him as, like, not as big a star as Hulk Hogan. Yeah. But, like, they watch this, and it's like, this is the match to get Ric Flair, I think, more than any other. Even more than the Steamboat matches. Because it's like, it's just more entertaining than, than, you know, I, I think to a casual fan than the Steamboat matches. So, and, you know, in terms of the 80s, there's just so many little bits like him interacting with Carrie Von Erich for oh, that's a minute. I mean, you feel like it's Dallas in 82 all over again for 60 seconds or interacting with Valentine. I mean, Valentine and Von Erich were just dying on the vine. Yeah, they were doing, doing anything in 92. And they feel important for those 60 seconds just because they're interacting with Flair. And the commentary, obviously, Bobby Heenan gives, you know, it's his best 60 minutes ever, too. Yeah. Very. Um, just tremendous. It's Flair's peak during his entire WWF run. Easily. I, he, the incredible interview afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Which is the cherry on top. I'm going to tell you all with a tear in my eye. This is the greatest moment in my life. When you walk around this world and you tell everybody you're number one, the only way you get to stay number one is to be number one. And this is the only title in the wrestling world that makes you number one when you are the king of the WWE. You rule the world. 
think about it like that, Mr. Perfect. Guys, we're up there. Woo! Woo! Let's give a big one. Woo! You did it. But, you know, your favorite moments from the match. I My, my favorite part of this, I love the layout of this match so much because I think that the... I, we talked before about how, as we were kind of talking about the 1991 Royal Rumble, how I, I and, and the 1990 Royal Rumble for that matter too, matches that have a degree of ingenuity in the layout will always impress me as as in, in terms of the creative aspect of it all. And I love in 1990 the way that they kind of segment the stars and they kind of load up fairly early to have the big clean-out moment for Hogan and Warrior and then as Hogan and Warrior kind of move towards the finish line after that, it kind of staggers and stumbles a little bit, but you got perfect and rude in there. Mm-hmm. 91 kind of lost that a little bit, and it kind of went back to being kind of like the 89 Rumble, and it was just kind of a bit of a schmars battle royal, which is the, the schmars Rumble that we've seen before. 92 kind of mirrored 90 uh, to a degree, except that Flair was in both halves, which, which is just fantastic. And I love the second... You know, my, my favorite period of the entire match is... When there's just that glove guys in the ring after Flair's been working with Bulldog and Kerry and he's done a little bit with Tito and he's done some stuff with Sean and all of a sudden the ring starts clearing out and it ends up with Bossman and Flair. Bossman with the fucking funniest elimination I may ever see in a Royal Rumble where he flies through the air, gets caught up on the top rope and then when he finally gets himself over the rope, almost kills himself on yeah, the top rope. Yeah, I Absolutely. Himself. And then he just like falls to the ground and like he's dead. Like he's absolutely just fucking dead after being whiplashed. Flair gets up, does the flare flop. Heenan is screaming that they should just give him the belt because he's won. And then just when it's that moment, again, they, they copied this in 97 with Breton and, and Austin, but the guy that comes next is Piper and the look, the way that Flair sells it and the way that Heenan sells it. It's and, and the way that you know, Piper gets in the ring and does what he does with his kind of you know manic dancing in a circle was going for Flair. And no one just, else could get away with that, by the way. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that's 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 all Piper. And again, just deviating from the norm a little bit. They go to the floor. They do stuff on the outside before they get back in there. Jake comes out, and it's the great call of both of them saying Jake the Snake Roberts at the same time on commentary. And Jake just comes in and just sits there and watches Piper having the sleeper. It's just, I'd I love that. And again, near the end, I mean, to be honest, the end itself is just fucking tremendous. When when people just piss themselves, like, oh my God, Flair's actually won this. I love that because, you know, in terms of moments that are my favorites, we may as well bring it up now because we talked before about my theory of the 1980s WF being, you know, kind of aligning with the fact that a lot of things happened in this role that wouldn't normally happen. Hogan gets booed. Yes. And Sid gets cheered for the elimination at the end. And we need to obviously go over that finish. Yeah, so obviously, as everyone listening to this podcast knows, I, I can't imagine someone would seek out a 1992 podcast and not know how the 1992 Royal Rumble ends. <laughs> but it comes down to Flair, Hogan, and Sid. And, you know, Hogan's got Flair, you know, half over the ropes, Heenan screaming, oh my God. Then Sid comes from behind, dumps Hogan. And the funny thing, yeah, the crowd cheers. And, and then Hogan acts like a huge baby and pulls Sid out, and that's how Flair wins. And now some people have a problem with that in the sense that, oh, my God, what a creative failure. It made Hogan look bad. But I want to throw this to you. This is a bit of a curveball. It's not in the notes, okay? Okay. 
Hogan had acted like a baby before <laughs> in, yes. in, in a Royal Rumble, no less. I mean, he acted like a baby many times before when he, he doesn't win, right? Yeah. But in the 89 Rumble, he gets dumped out very cleanly and fairly by Akeem and the boss man. And then he comes back and he, like, the bo- they're, they're beating down Beefcake, I think it is. And he reaches up and grabs the ropes and boss man goes tumbling over. And, like, Ventura is going nuts about it, but the crowd didn't care. Yep. So my question to you is, why did this backfire on Hogan this time? Why did it change? Why did it change? That's a a lovely question that sets up a couple of speeches that we could probably go into here. The thing has always been said with Hogan when you look at him, obviously, not just that, but if you look at him through the Savage storyline, he's pretty much the heel, really. Yes. Um, Lust Hogan, looking, you know, trying to, trying to mack on Liz. He always, it's like the deal when people like criticize like Rock and Austin, like, oh, they were, you know, they're characters, they were assholes. It's like, yeah, but you don't understand it. Like, it didn't matter. Like, if, if, you, if you're in that time and place, you understand Rock was cool, Austin was cool, if you look at them it, it, and compare their actions to some kind of you know non-existent wrestling textbook of what a face and a heel should be, yeah, okay, it doesn't match up. Who cares? Look at the money they drew. And it's the same with Hogan in the sense of it didn't really matter. And, and you know, that's kind of the way they look at it. It's like, it doesn't really matter. We'll get where we need to get to. And because Hogan's such a star, mm-hmm. the star power kind of tides him through. We have been talking in this series, Carl, since 1990 about the waning impact of Hulk Hogan and the waning power that Hogan had stale at the start of 1990. His drawing power wasn't what it was. Comes back, has a brief flash for his return at SummerSlam 90 against Earthquake. But the fall of 1990, the houses are not doing well at all and they get desperate. They get so desperate they come up with a Gulf War angle but ends up fucking tanking things worse and wrestlemania does a disappointing by right the the sheen is coming off the hogan uh the hogan surface and that's it's been two years of it it's been two years of this slow erosion of you know for the most part everybody's gonna kind of go along with it but again now we're talking about all this media hitting at the same time and it's in new york and to to be honest sid was always pretty over in new york Yes. If you what if you even if you watch you know, the the few times that the you know, Sid's there before he gets to the WWF, he's always over in New York. He's over in New York years later against Shawn Michaels. He's they they like a bit of Sid. Um So and, so do you do you think if it was a different heel that this might not have happened? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. I think if if this I think that there was this I think at that point Given the performance, I think people kind of wanted Flair to win anyway, to be <laughs> honest. Um, because the cheers when he wins, there's not really a lot of booing going on when Flair wins. So it's I, I I do think that if Flair had dumped Hogan, you probably kind of may get the same thing. The fact that it's Sid, I think, cements that it's gonna happen for sure. And I know that dubious a source as Sid UD is, he has claimed multiple times and with a fairly consistent story that Hogan was screaming and crying quote like a woman after the show at Vince McMahon that he got booed as a result of this scenario and was paranoid that this scenario this booking idea was set up so that that would happen he was paranoid apparently according to Sid that uh that Hogan just thought this was this was set up for me to get booed 
this because when you look at it on paper, how could how you know with a logical brain, how could it not? And and the only reason it wasn't before is because you know kind of lazy booking would kind of, you kind of get away with it because he's such a big star. That's coming off a little bit. In truth, it may have happened anyway, but Hogan would be right to think this wasn't the best conceived idea to maintain his babyface credibility. Yeah, although I just think you know you know Vince's in his head was like, oh, we've always gotten away with this, and you know we have to. Protect, That's what I mean. Yeah, we have to protect Hogan some way. We just can't have him get dumped fair. I mean, Hulk's not going to agree to that getting dumped fair and square. So you have to come up with a convoluted scenario mm-hmm. to get rid of him. And yeah, I, I just think this time it backfired. The all the stories we talked about earlier and in 1991 didn't help and. Uh, it's very interesting, though. Now, the promotion goes out of its way to fix mm-hmm. quote this reaction over subsequent weeks leading up to WrestleMania. But it feels like and, you know, that we could talk about that and we're going to moving forward. But it I know Dave talks about like at the houses, Hogan's getting some surprisingly negative reactions, but it felt yeah. like on TV he wasn't. And this was almost kind of um, an anomaly. Yeah. You think so? I mean, like, I don't think this is like this huge, like, I, th- I don't think Hogan getting booed is this huge. St- I actually like it. It makes me like the match more like you. <laughs> me too. <laughs> because like, like ho- afterwards when it's just him and sit in the ring. Oh, and, it's so good. And Hogan looks at the crowd and he realizes they're not with him. It's, it's like, beautiful. it just like fills my like heart with just so much glee. And doesn't Sid just play it great when he's pointing yeah. at the sign screaming, Hulk who? Hulk yeah. who? Yeah, yeah. And he drops to his knees and calls for the accolades of the year. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's why Hulk was, quote, crying like a woman, uh, if you yeah. believe Sid Yudi. But, uh, you know, it, it did feel like this was kind of an anomaly in this. And do you just think it was kind of the perfect storm that it was Sid as the third, as the heel, and Flair was in the midst of this incredible, you know, legendary performance? Do you think that, like, and then you have the media story? Because it, it it just didn't feel like this was as big a problem moving forward. And thus, I don't think it's a reason to criticize the match at all. No, I, I, no of course it's not. Absolutely, it's not a reason to criticize this. It's it's If this ha- if this show happened in Florida, they probably don't boo. If it okay. happened, I think if, it's the fact that it's New York, it's Hogan. New York was kind of ahead of the curve. They're listening to the, the media. Sid's being awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Flair has been even more awesome to, to a degree they've never seen before. And it was, again, it's that it's that thing of, they've seen Hogan win. They've seen, you know, they've had it for years and it was stale. And they and, and here yeah, is this, this incredible yeah. thing before their eyes and they wanted to see it happen because it's history. Yeah, who wants to see Hogan win a third straight Rumble? Too? Yeah. That's something that needs to be talked about. He'd won the previous two. And, you know, kind of, he didn't need to win it 90 and 91 was a foregone conclusion. So, my God, I mean, if you... You know, have a pulse. I mean, I think even like me as an 11-year-old kid, I didn't want to see Hogan win this match. Now, it's not all good news about the Royal Rumble. (laughs) Um, Show does 1.85 rate or about 320,000 buys, which is good for worst of all time, save for this. (laughs) Uh, Why do we think this show did such a crummy buy rate? Uh, I've been waiting to say this. Okay. I I think there's a kind of an obvious answer, but it seems like you have something uh, more uh, interesting. Yeah. Well, you know what? What's, what's your what's your take for the obvious answer? First of all, I'm interested by that. The scandals, <laughs> the scandals that that people just are kind of like, eh, I don't really know about this WF anymore. I mean, you know, the Survivor Series uh, number was crappy too, and mm-hmm. it just seems like it's it's part of a you know a linear trend, a, a slow downward trend that WWE just keeps setting. You know, uh, they're just not doing well on pay per view. 
Yeah, that may well be. It may be that simple, frankly. It may be that simple. But I had a theory that was based on this throwaway line we read from Meltzer in the last, I think it's 4B uh, of the 91 series that we did. And it was just ringing in my ears when I saw you ask this question of why I thought this was. We were talking about Jake and Savage being an absolutely just mind-blowingly fantastic angle with the snake bite and the, the Tuesday in Texas and the promos afterwards and Jake slapping Liz and it's just unbelievable television and it didn't draw at all. It was, it was yeah. disappointing to say the least when it came to the actual house show business. And there was a line that Meltzer wrote when he was talking about Savage coming back and the snake bite. And I really wanted your take on this because obviously you were a fan at the time and I'm assuming that you probably didn't feel this way, but I just kind of wanted to get your sense of the pulse. Meltzer okay. had a line that we blew through because it was just one of those things he says. And he said, Savage, the snake bite angle itself felt like the ultimate hot shot angle. And then in brackets, he wrote, but don't they all seem like that these days? And I just, when I was thinking, I said, like, you know what? The whole thing with the belts changing hands and this is like, if in the moment, does this feel like this just doesn't have the resonance or something? Okay. Um, I was wondering if you were going to go this route, actually. And you did. So... I'm not going to disagree because here's the thing that I'm thinking about. Tournaments generally don't draw on pay-per-view, yeah. right? But, you know, I mean, people love to talk about how they love tournaments, but it's, I mean, King of the Ring died as a pay-per-view concept yeah. eventually. And, you know, WrestleMania four, not well regarded, didn't do great on pay-per-view. And the thinking and Meltzer's espouses before is, people like to know what they're buying or they just like to buy that one main event matchup. And I do wonder if, well, you know, anyone can win the world title here. It's just a match where, you know, in the Royal Rumble, we talked about this previously, head wasn't a big drawing card yet. I think it, yeah. was, it, was a, it was a clear number three behind SummerSlam. And I just wonder if, you know, while so many people nowadays, you know, they revere this match, obviously, like I said, it's one of my favorite matches of all time. I wonder if people just looked at the idea of the Royal Rumble determining the world champion is not that appealing. That's kind of what I'm thinking, because as much as we're talking about how there's some good promos and the build works for us as people who are viewing it, and it gets me excited for it, it's like, at the same time, if you're one of those people who is not super locked in and you're watching an awful lot of promos from guys like Virgil telling you to bet on him and Repo Man saying he's going to be the champion, <laughs> like, I wonder if that just does not resonate when yeah, it's I mean like... It's, it's, it's the what's going to happen sell. Yeah, it's you know, casual people like the stars. And there was a lot of star power in this. But I think maybe they just felt it was kind of watered down by being, you know, intermingled with, you know, the Virgils, the, you know, the Skinners, the Repo Mans, like you said. So or, you know, I think it, it could be part of that. And, but I do think the scandal was hurting. At the point. scandals, the scandals for sure. And the other thing, too, again, with pay-per-views being less frequent, they've only got the, the the big four at the time. Obviously, they'd done Tuesday in Texas to try and get some extra revenue in because there were financial problems, as we talked about in 4B. But people are slowly, we're talking about these things being the worst of all time. There are, there, there is that lineal pattern that, less and less people are in the habit of buying the WF pay-per-views in the last year. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think they have not, they have not beaten the previous year, year over year since the previous round, 91. Yeah. And I wondered, well, that was it. 
But but why did it do good? Well, it did well because it had a world title match, not because of the yeah. Rumble. We decided it, but then they they put the wrong person over there. So believe it or not, let's move on here um, because we have a double main event to talk about. Yes, uh, but do. even after the Rumble finish, which clearly teases a Hogan Sid program, and obviously it's easier to say this thirty years of hindsight, but you know Meltzer was still speculating that Hogan and Flair would be the WrestleMania main event, and that Hogan and Sid might be stalled for SummerSlam. He says uh, that one week prior, the WWF shipped posters to Japan for WrestleMania, which listed Flair as champion defending against Hogan as the top match. Yeah. That sounds odd because, I, I mean, like like I said, we've got the hindsight. We know what's going to happen. But And now they did tease us a little bit with, with a, um, a misdirection, <laughs> as we're going to get into. But, like... Clearly, this Hogan-Sid thing was going to... Like, you don't do that if you're not going to go to them wrestling at WrestleMania. No, of course not. Absolutely not. So, we do, of course, have the double main event to talk about. So, very early on, we get this. Flair versus Hogan is out at WrestleMania, replaced by a double main event of Flair versus Savage for the WWF title and Hogan versus Sid. The Hogan-Flair plan was changed mid-January based on Hogan taking five months off to do a movie, and there's a lot of questions about whether he'll come back. So it wouldn't make sense to have Hogan win the WWF title. Turns out that's not the only reason, of course. But an interesting note there about the fact that this the plan was changed mid-January. Yeah, because it seems that Hogan taking time off, as we previously mentioned, was well-known. It's yeah. not like he like dropped this on them right before the Rumble, and they're like, okay, well, we have to come up with something now to change the direction. Um, and what about what we talked about last time? Hogan and Flair had very much been burnt out at the houses at this point. It did sell out Boston in January. This was the first time we have sell out there, Liam, since Hogan and Boss Man in early 89, a near three-year gap. Uh, so they're struggling in one of their uh, strongest markets. But Meltzer in 04, we always go back to that history piece he wrote, he had this to say, and I want people to think about this because we're going to, Talk about it, obviously. Uh, there were positives to the Mania match, not being Hogan versus Flair. Hogan versus Justice was a first-time match of monsters, while Hogan versus Flair had been done everywhere and lost its steam. At the time, the house shows were hyped just as hard in the specific markets as the pay-per-views, so every market had seen the hype for the match, Hogan versus Flair, that is, and many markets had seen it multiple times. Had Flair and Hogan been kept apart until Mania and it was their first match ever, would it have been bigger than Hogan versus Justice? Possibly. But by the time January rolled around, Vince McMahon had a choice between a feud that wasn't just so Dave is uh, sticking even in 04 to this mid-January thing, as you can see. Uh, by the time January rolled around, Vince McMahon had a choice between a feud that wasn't drawing anymore or a fresh matchup of Giants. And uh, I would like to note, in the long run, them not doing Hogan and Flair at WrestleMania 8 worked to those guys' benefit when it came time for them to headline in WCW because WCW built it as their first ever pay-per-view match, which was correct. I think they actually built it as the first time they were ever wrestling, which was pretty shameless. But uh, <laughs> It was shameless, but people like me in England who like had no idea about the house show loops or anything like that, it's like, why did that match never happen in the WWF? Because we never saw it. Yeah, so what do you think now about this that... Um, because most people, and this is what we talked about earlier about, eh, you know, the scandal sort of render fantasy booking irrelevant, but there's a lot of people. I remember on Top Rope Nation, we did a show, you know, a Mount Rushmore of mania 
main event fantasy rebooks. Like you got to pick four mania main events that you would redo. Oh yeah. And you know, uh, my good friend and co-host Justin Joy, he picked this one. And a lot of people pick WrestleMania and say, Oh my God, how did they not do Hogan versus Flair on their own DVD? I believe they had Gene Okerlund or this may have been post DVD era. And it was just like network docs, like that history of WrestleMania yeah. that they did, but they had mean Gene uh, come out and say, Oh yeah, I can't, I don't really understand why they didn't do Hogan and Flair at WrestleMania eight. But when you kind of get back in the weeds and put the 1992 shoes on, even if they'd done the scenario that I laid out last time with doing Hogan and Flair at Survivor Series, and I think one of the reasons I said to do that is because I didn't think they could get stretch it They're out. They're going to make it here, yeah. First time to Mania. So what do you think? Was this the right call to change it to a double main event instead of doing Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair, which everyone thinks they should have done 30 years later? Yes, I mean, there's a there's, there's a lot to this, because traditionally speaking, the company had never headlined Mania with a match that had already gone around the houses with on a full loop. But the only exception I can think of is that they did do some Hogan-Bundy matches before Mania 2. But I don't, uh, yeah, the, the, the previous seven WrestleMania main events, besides that one, they did not take it around the country before. And, and, and how much did Hogan and Bundy work? Because that was like an 80... 80- Five, they worked a little bit, maybe. But end of eighty five, a few, a few, a couple, two or three at the start of eighty six. But yeah, they. Okay. It, it, again, I wouldn't consider that a full loop. It was just they did a few matches around the horn, but not, okay. not, not, not like a full loop. And Meltzer's often made the point that, believe it or not, this was the right move in the moment because it felt to them that the juice behind, pardon the language, but the juice behind Hogan <laughs> and Flair had dissipated and that was no longer the fresh thing they had been teasing this hogan flair thing since SummerSlam, or just before when when he bought the belt on at this point it's january there's been five months of kind of talk but not really direct on television about hogan flair it's just something that's kind of going on and obviously they're they're, they're hitting the hype hard for the house shows and at this point it probably feels like old news to them Meanwhile, Sid, who when he came in and did not really get to be capitalized on straight away because of his injury, now he's back. Now he looks the way he looks. He's he's in some ways custom built to be a Hulk Hogan opponent, if you think of things the way that Hulk Hogan yes. thinks of them. And you can just see, and as we talked about before, the theory that if Vince thinks something will appeal to his perceived wider audience, he will always pick that over something that feels like you know, a safe bet. Yes, and you know we talked about this when they pivoted to Hogan Undertaker on TV from Hogan yep. versus Flair. Remember yep. that it just it felt more natural and more WWF when they went to Hogan Undertaker. Yeah. And it, it kind of as we're going to talk about here, it feels more natural too. Like Hogan is just something that Vince could stick his teeth in. They didn't do Hogan Flair right for the first couple months. There's no reason to believe that they would have done it right building up to Mania. Now, there was just no way to keep it fresh. So, uh, I, And ultimately, I don't think it matters. I, I, no. I actually don't. I actually think, it, had they done Hogan and Flair, even with it not being fresh, do you think Mania 8 would have done demonstrably worse? I think that's a question to be asked. Yeah, um, I don't know that it would have done worse. But I'm not, so, I'm not certain that it's gonna, it would have done that much better either. No, I don't. That, and that gets back to, I think, the main crux of today's discussion, that yeah. fantasy booking really doesn't matter anymore. Um, so, And then there is the idea of 
you can't have hope like Hogan hasn't beaten Flair on television yet. Mm. And you can't have him beat Flair at WrestleMania eight because he's leaving. Yeah. Now we'll get to this when we break down WrestleMania eight. Um, that I think there was a way you could, again, I don't know if it would have made it better, worse, indifferent. There was something you could, if you wanted to do Hogan flair as the main event, and get out of it without Hogan winning the title. There was a pretty obvious way to do that. Just basically what they did with Hogan and Sid. Yes, and Hogan and Sid. But alas, you know, they thought Hogan and Justice would be hotter. And um, back to 92, Liam, as we stop hypothesizing, the Hogan Flair match will actually be announced on the syndicated shows. Uh, but they'll do an angle, likely on the Saturday night's main event, which airs on Fox February 8th and switch it to the double main event soon after. Reports are that Sid will turn heel, despite the reaction at the end of the Rumble. And so I want to ask you this. What do we think about what they did, that they did announce Hogan versus Flair will be the main event of WrestleMania 8? They did a press conference. We'll get to that momentarily. And then they pulled that out from under you. That seems weird to announce something and not deliver. Very against the Vince McMahon playbook. Absolutely. This is just fucking bizarre. And so, I mean, when you look at this... In totality, it's it's just a mechanism to start the move towards Sid as a heel, as we'll discuss shortly. But announcing a match, announcing Hogan and Flair is not a move that I would have made because I don't like card changes in my pay-per-view builds anyway. Because, and maybe this is PTSD from that awful SummerSlam 99 main event build, mm-hmm. which was just heinous. <laughs> but no matter yeah. what, you end up as a fan having to reconcile your excitement for the new match that's going to be happening with the disappointment that you have for not getting the match they originally told you you were going to get. It's like, if you'd have just told me it's going to be Hogan and Sid and, or done an angle for that, then yeah, but like, why would you tell people that like, you're going to get this? Oh, no, you're not. Like, I, 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 don't grant, I know, like I said, it's a mechanism to get Sid towards a heel for what they're going to do. They, they didn't need to do that based off what happened at the Rumble. It wasn't necessary. So, I I think this is a very poor move, frankly. Yeah, they were they, they were already going in that direction, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they could have the, the way Sid does turn heel, and it leads to the Mania match. They could have done that without announcing uh, Hogan as the number one contender. It feels like Hogan being announced as the number one contender in this press conference that we'll get to was just a power play for him and his ego. Oh, yeah, like, in, like, in many like, ways like, it does. Yeah, like, oh, Hogan should be in this world title match, but he can't because, you know, he's just so consumed with Sid. So yeah. that, that was something that uh, hit me there. Yeah, but, uh, like, like, like it's that, you know, him not being in that position is not because of anything to do with Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan would be in that position if it wasn't for this, uh, you know, bizarre circumstance with Sid. Yeah, yeah. and, and it's, it's just, you know, we talked about, okay, maybe Hogan and Flair's cold by mid-January, but it is still, I think, in a lot of people... Eyes a dream match, and you see it. You see the graphic for it with WrestleMania underneath, yeah. and it's like, oh wow, this is really happening. And to take that out, that was, I think, that was a mistake. Now that was a the, big mistake. Yeah, the Fox special, because yes, folks, Saturday Night's Main Event is moving to Fox here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will not be live because Flair is scheduled to headline some shows in California at that same time against Roddy Piper. It's also going to be one hour. Not 90 minutes as the as was custom on NBC. Although I will point out, uh, the manias to or the main Saturday's main events to set up mania in the past had only been an hour. The main yeah. event, if you will, 
um, you know, 88, 89, 90, 90. Those were all hour long specials. So um, this was kind of in that same tradition. Yeah. Um, so how do they got to the double main event? Uh, the most bogus act Jack Tunney ever pulled. Uh, <laughs> with Sid, enact, uh, Sid acting, enacting, uh, Sid acting annoyed after the press conference. I thought this was a great angle and a great promo, Liam. This Sid is fantastic in this and calling total bullshit on the whole situation and the rumble finish. It is absolutely, uh, it's fantastic. The, <laughs> the person who will be getting the shot is, and Sid just like standing up like okay, he's going to okay. get it. Hold on, hold on. Time out, time out. I, I think I said this, oh God, I don't know if I said it on a podcast for Top Nation or a Facebook group. It's my dream that when Vince an- announces the succession plan for WWE, <laughs> I want him to do it at a press conference like this, and I want Bruce Pritchard to be in the Sid Justice role, <laughs> where he stands up thinking he's going to get it, and Vince just announces someone else, like oh, like Nick Khan is Hogan, and Bruce is just tearing up his papers, so upset. <laughs> this is really good. Obviously, for those who don't know, the press conference is Jack Tunney. They, they they play this out for a week or so, where all these the five top stars, so it's Savage, Taker, um, Piper, Sid, and Hogan. Mm-hmm. And they're all lobbying to become the number one contender, which leads in itself to some kind of humorous promos, uh, like like Piper saying that you know he wasn't calling Tony fat, so he was asking, "Is that so?" Yeah. And, and it's just, <laughs> I did like that. Yeah, and it's like, but it's, it's basically people vouching for the spot, and they all said, had kind of valid claims, it seemed. Yeah, which I liked, and I uh, when when this deal happens and. Savage does a pretty kind of white bread promo saying, well, you know, I'm not really, you know, I, I can't say I'm happy that I'm not there, but if it's not going to be me, then I'm happy it's Hogan. And it seems like the right thing to do. Sid, however, <laughs> takes the exact opposite approach in phenomenal fashion. Where he basically just says, this is a bunch of bollocks. Like, I fucking eliminate him from the Rumble, number one. Number two, he cheated to eliminate me. And then he's the guy that gets picked to wrestle for the belt. I was the last man in the ring. I would be the guy if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan. And it's like, yeah, he's right. Except Justice, you were obviously not pleased with the news. Hey, yo, shut up! I want to say something. What happened at Royal Rumble? It was simple. I was the last man standing. I would be the world champion if it wasn't for you, Hogan, pulling me out from outside the ring. Now, what you did, Jack Tunney, was bogus! The most bogus act you've ever pulled off. I want to ask you, what is it? Is it because I'm not a big movie star like Hulk Hogan, the big immortal one himself? Is it because Sid Justice is the newcomer? Well, I want to tell you something, Hulk Hogan. You couldn't beat Ric Flair on your best day. But I can. Why? Because Sid Justice rules the world. Is it because I'm not a big movie star? Like the immortal one himself, Hulk Hogan? Uh, Yeah, I thought this was a phenomenal Sid promo. People, I'm sure, have have seen this. It opens up superstars. I think they replayed on Challenge. But, you know, it it was kind of a different way to open up a syndicated show, too, with a big angle like this. I thought from Mm. start to finish it was great. Um, It was just Titan employees in the crowd. But... They made it look like a good press conference. We talked about Hogan at certain points looking like he was cycling off steroids. This press conference was definitely one of them. Oh, he's he's off it by now. Yeah, he's off. Now, now that this this shitstorm, it's over with. Yeah, he's 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 weaning off. And, and you know, it's funny because we talk about the way they, man, they would go to manipulate the 
reaction at the Rumble. Hogan does himself no favors in the way he acts when he gets announced. Like, he's like, yes, yes. He's like jumping on people. He's just so overbearing. And then they have Sid cut the promo where he's completely telling the truth. And you're like, wait, you're like, yeah, he does have a pretty good point here. (laughs) So like, you know, again, Hogan's doing himself no favors, but uh, there is an insincere apology. Another great Sid promo. I know. I can't believe it. I can't believe we're talking about it like this, but it's true. Yeah, where he... Uh, says, oh, Hulk, it's a bit bigger. It's, you can see what's coming here, though. Uh, there's a tag match announced for Saturday Night's main event. The main event is Hogan and Justice teaming up against Flair and The Undertaker. And, of course, it ends with Sid walking out on Hogan. And this time, the fans did not cheer Sid. This is in part because uh, WWE did, made sure to do a promo with Sid before the match, which did not air on television, where Sid rips Texas in order to get that quote right reaction yeah. for the turn. That's so. I think the people live in the uh, audience knew what was coming. Yeah, I think they had hints there, and, and and I think a lot of people did too. But before the tag match, and this is something that a lot of people yeah. know about, they show the quote. Uh, these are Dave's words: "New and improved Rumble footage with redone commentary and redone crowd noise." And uh, it's notable, Dave said that Sid, who you alluded to this earlier, Sid comes back uh, from his biceps injury even bigger than before. And he was uh, getting cheered after the rumble at places like MSG where Hogan's name was booed, and that shocked everyone. So it wasn't mm. just the rumble. But I get it's New York, though, MSG. So yeah. it's New York, Hogan's getting booed. But here they go out of their way. They overdub the rumble footage. I'm sure everyone's seen it. It looks so – it just is so preposterous if you know what happens. But then Sid cuts the promo uh, you know, to the live crowd where he rips on Texas. I mean, that's a real you know signal for what's coming. What are your thoughts – on going to these lengths to manipulate crowd reaction. And wasn't it pretty obvious, you know, as a viewer that this was going to happen? I know you weren't watching the time, but I was watching the time. And I'm like, Sid is so obviously going to turn on him here. Yeah. Oh, 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 my God, is it ever. So uh, the manipulation of the crowd is a big story in itself because I can't imagine they'd ever had to do this before when I think about it with Hogan. And if they ever had, it's few and far between. Uh, we talked, obviously, about Hogan's acting stale before the bad press. Ultimately, I mean, and, and personally, I would have booed him based on the jeans he wore at that press conference because he was <laughs> Hogan's Hogan's was just in, in, in shocking, shocking form. I think that the problem with yeah, there's, there's so much. The problem with this is that Sid's a guy that really hadn't had. He didn't really have much of a reason to boo him. Like they they redo the comedy to try and kind of change the narrative. It's not, it's not just that it's, it's, it's obviously it's the booze and the cheers. It's the fact that, oh, he didn't, you know, he got Hogan from behind. What a, what a cheap shot that is, as opposed to, you know, what spinning him around and eliminating him that way, I suppose. But it's just, it feels so, it feels like such a reach to do this because it's, mm. like I said, they, they never had to do it before with Hogan anyway. So now here it is. And it's like this, this, everything about this just doesn't feel, and I kind of have this feeling going forward with this program too, where it's like, this just does not feel like it's resonating with the audience. Interesting. Um, because I want to talk about Sid as a heel. Um, yeah. Vis-a-vis what you said about him as a baby face previously. I, but uh, first off, while not impressed with the wrestling on Saturday Night's Made Event, Dave said the Sid angle was fantastic, and Sid is the closest thing that they've got to replicating the success of Zeus from 1989 <laughs> at this point. Wow, I said. Oh, when yeah. I read that. I, I didn't get that impression. 
Yeah, that's, that's I, I agree. Now, there's a point, a point that you made a second ago about was this obvious? And when you see the apology promo where he's got mm. that fucking shit and grin on his face, it's fairly clear that it's phony. And 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 they're laying it on thick. And if and the and if if you didn't get it from the apology, the pre-match promo with Sean Mooney, where he's talking to Sid, and then just as he's about to answer, he just turns and just asks Hulk Hogan the question, and Sid's like, "You motherfucker!" And he just and walks Sid off walks in the middle off, of the promo, yeah. makes it fairly clear that yeah, something's coming here. In terms of replicating Zeus, I again, yeah, I don't, I didn't feel that at all at this point. I was quite underwhelmed, um, given what this could have been. Yeah, I was quite underwhelmed. Okay, so let's talk about Sid as a heel. Because later in those same tapings, Sid destroys the barbershop. Yes, the barbershop, uh, which would become the uh, home of several key angles that we'll talk about here uh, on the show. And I thought this was actually kind of an awesome segment. The visual of yeah. white powder on Sid's face while screaming for Hogan's shirt was something. Yeah, an, an amazing fluke, which the crowd did laugh at. And I think the first uh, the first time they showed this, they cut out when the thing exploded, the, 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 the shaving cream exploded and went all over his face. But you hear the crowd laugh. Um, nice to see Hogan not help Brutus Beefcake, his friend, till the end. Um, Beefcake yeah. runs for his life. Beefcake runs for his life like a coward from Sid, who's just absolutely fucking maniacal. But again, with all that shit on his face, it doesn't matter. It's fucking it's yeah. great. Yeah, it's like just total like right out of Scarface. It just looks like he put his like face in a mound of blow <laughs> and just went insane. So... In our last episode, you mentioned, it may not have been the last one, but it was part four for sure, maybe 4A. You'd mm-hmm. mentioned Sid struggling as a babyface promo. Yeah. I think once he turns heel, and we've mentioned this with the press conference and, and the insincere apology when he was in the midst of turning heel, he's far more natural as a promo in the heel role. Do you think it was the right move turning him heel? I, I've been thinking, I've been, I've been, I was going to bring this up because I'm, of such two minds Sid this point here is the part where it feels like Sid is at his best in terms of what the WF would get out of him Mm -hmm. the the, the maniacal screaming promos the fact that he's as big as he is he's like I said he's this is Vince McMahon's wet dream for a Hogan opponent he really is and he's playing the role very very well you know and when you look at it from that perspective, it's like, obviously, this guy should be a monster heel. And he himself would lobby. For, he was lobbying for this. Like, he wanted to be a heel. Well, it's what he was promised when he jumped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, wa- he wanted to be the heel. And, and you know, there were some people like, you know, Sid, you know, he's a baby face. You, you know, Hogan's, there's some weird stuff going on with Hogan. You may end up being, you know, the next guy in that position or whatever, especially after, you know, with Warrior gone. And like I said, I think he struggles as a character as a baby face promo. It's, it's it's such a tough one to say because ultimately that was that would have only lasted so long anyway before I think that the the shitty promos and everything like that didn't it would not have paid off in the long run. So I guess the answer is that this was his best use. I just don't think that once they got him in his best position, they didn't really make the best use of him. You know, it's kind of like what we see today, where you know he's just he's cooler as a heel. Yeah, oh yeah. But like, but like, but you know, but you kind of want to cheer him more as mm-hmm. a heel because he's cooler, even though you know he's doing heelish things, and it, it's kind of like you know they they try to white meet him as a baby face, and that's not what you do with Sid. This yeah. is like Sid acting this way is why people cheer him, but you know, again, I, to Vince it came off as a traditional heel, and yes, by the way, Brutus Beefcake, I mentioned the barbershop, uh, 
Beefcake accompanies Hogan and Justice to the ring at Saturday Night's Main Event. He is billed, as you already said, Hogan's friend to the end. What the and, hell was that? Well, what the hell was this promo <laughs> after the Saturday Night's Main Event match, uh, which I I don't know if that actually aired on Saturday Night's Main Event. I didn't rewatch that full show. I rewatched what they showed on syndication, but they, they show this promo afterwards with Hogan and Beefcake. And Beefcake is talking about how Hogan was in bed with him during the facial reconstruction <laughs> surgery, and the blood was pumping between them? Yeah, I, I insinuating that Hogan gave him a blood transfusion or something? I don't know. It was actually that he woke up and Hogan was in bed with him, which I thought was even more alarming. They, 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 did, they did air this on Satellite's main event, yeah, this okay. right after the turn. Okay, so Dave notes that the use of beefcake for sympathy is pretty shameless, and I would agree with that. We did at least get the tremendous face-off line from Heenan, so when beefcake confronted Sid when Sid was leaving the ring during the match, Sid kind of goes like he's going to punch beefcake, and Heenan's like, "Uh uh-oh, if he punches him, it's going to be like a hockey game, a (laughs) face-off. I really like that line. Uh, Now, a line that I could not find uh, on the television, and I wonder if, it just wasn't on whatever. If we haven't gotten to it, it was in March and it, you know, it was tape. Dave heard about this being taped and we just haven't gotten to it. But says <laughs> Hogan does a promo where he compares Sid to Charles Manson and hyped their match at the quote Pontiac Hoosier dome. <laughs> and then, they didn't, they didn't make him redo it because it's Hogan. Dave says, I could not find this yet. And what is it about, Hogan and the Pontiac Silverdome, man. And it's, just it's, always the only, it's the only dome he knows. I guess um, so. It's, it's, wor- it's worth mentioning a couple quick things here. So, just going back to Beefcake a second. There's a, it's, the entire shoehorning of Brutus in this story at the start is just fucking weird. Because it doesn't actually really go anywhere. And he's no, but- like, why is he even here? And I almost got the sense that... They wanted to do an angle where Sid would kill him, but they backed off from it or something. Because Sid, in a promo later on, and it might be at the start of February, but he, when he's talking about everything that he's done, he mentions that he's destroyed Beefcake, which makes no sense because he hasn't. But it's Sid, so you know you can't just take it with a grain of salt. But it's like, other than like trying to time into Hogan to be having be like the best friend that gets killed, you know, that's the like you know Creed and Rocky or something like that. Yeah, it's like the only thing that I can see really because Beefcake serves absolutely no purpose here at all. Yeah, I think you're right. They they wanted to go for the cheap heat, but I don't know if it was you know what's going on in the world around them. Maybe they decided, eh, okay, you know Phil Mushnick writing about snake bites and stuff like that, and you know if they did something where. I don't know, they allege a guy who had facial reconstructive surgery, his face fell off or something. They're like, maybe that's press we don't want to deal with and we don't need it, really. Because yeah. they, they didn't need it with Beefcake. Yeah, remember they did that weird angle where Sid broke Virgil's nose for no reason? Yes, yes. They, yeah, they, I wonder if that was... That was going to be Beefcake. I wonder if that was going to be Beefcake. Yes, they do do that. So yeah, um, yeah fuck it. Let's throw this in there. I was going to save it for last time, but or next time. But, um, you know, Sid, he adds Harvey Whippleman to, to yeah his ensemble, which is, you know, Dave was, had a real hoot saying, oh my God, who would have ever thought downtown Bruno would be the manager of the lead heel in the WWF? Uh, I certainly <laughs> would have, and uh, would not have, but, um, you know, Sid's like beating up jobbers, putting them on stretchers. Like yep. you said, um, Virgil comes out to save one of the jobbers and gets his quote nose broken. Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I, I think that Virgil was kind of, that was probably intended for beefcake and they just threw Virgil to the wolves instead. 
Yeah, yeah, because they want to do the angle to, to, to put Sid over. Also, want to make mention of the fact that when they announced the new double main event on WWF Update, <laughs> thank you yes. very much, what a way to announce the main event. They hinted a special referee for the match between Hogan and Sid that they'll talk about more next week, which they then don't. Um, and the original talk was this was going to be George Foreman was was what they wanted. And then when that fell through, they were going to get Lou Ferrigno to do it for a WBF tie-in. And then they just decided not to do that either. So. Well, yeah, Lou had his own problems. We'll get, we will get to that <laughs> next episode. But yeah, I wonder if now, I wonder if this is when George Foreman allegedly stole the idea for his grill from Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, we do have a double main event officially now. It was updated, uh, you know, the WWF update uh, segment. You know, it announces... We now have two main events. Hogan versus Sid is one of them as a result of what happened on Saturday's main event. And then Ric Flair versus Randy Savage uh, mm-hmm. as the WWF title match. You know, both Dave and Wade kind of like this. They said, well, now we're going to have a great WWF title match. And Meltzer says the plan for the Flair-Savage feud is that it will revolve around photos of Elizabeth, quote, or something, end mm-hmm. quote. That, of course, does happen. We're going to talk about that build in the next episode, not today, because we've got so much still to get to. And oh, yeah. we'll, we'll kind of run through that feud uh, in part two of 92. But here's my question, and I think it's a good one. Did the WWF title seem secondary to Hogan and Justice based on the way they created this double main event scenario? I think that for reasons we're going to talk about in more detail in the next episode, I think that this is not the way that you would remember, for example, WrestleMania 28 with Rock and Cena as opposed to Punk and Jericho. It didn't have that feel for sure. Oh, no. This this was very much... This felt like a fairly double main event, and I think a lot of that is because the story with one of these feuds is pretty damn good, and the story with the other one really isn't all that interesting, frankly. Okay, so you're saying, like, by the end... And again, this is something we'll examine a little bit more next episode that flair and savage you think by the time mania rolled around was the hotter feud and didn't feel secondary at all absolutely okay um something that was interesting to me and this i i don't know if i would have answered the question i posed to you i I, well it the answer may still be yes that it might still feel a little secondary at least the way it's announced but it also could have been the way i misremembered this so i thought that it was the way they did it was like Hogan asks out of the world title match mm. for Sid, but that's not the way they did it. They like actually no. they did something where Jack Tunney claimed his like uh, reputation had been harmed by Sid's accusations, and therefore <laughs> he was changing the main event. And what was cool and what I liked, you know that that was kind of shitty. But what I liked is they announced that Savage is the new opponent for Flair and Mister Perfect, who's doing the syndicated. Uh, who's doing commentary on the, on superstars, the big band, he really sells it. Like, yeah. wait a minute. We weren't ready for this. This is a curveball. Oh, I was confident we could beat Hogan, but, but savage. I, I'm not, but yeah. I don't know what's So it was actually done a little bit better than I remember in that regard. I, I was prepared to like go on this big rant. Oh, way to make the WF title feel secondary. You idiots. That was stupid, but it, it kind of wasn't. And then we'll, you know, talk about how this feud heats up next time. But uh, if you're wondering how Randy Savage became the number one contender, Liam, I guess it's, by beating Jake Roberts on a certain main event and a feud we gushed about so much last time that ends rather abruptly. Uh, a yeah. great line from Meltzer in the observer Savage worked harder uh, than I've seen since his quote retirement two and three quarter stars. 
why don't we get that kind, why don't we get that kind of analysis today man uh, like, no. uh, oh, oh by the way that's worse than the women's money in the bank match in 2020 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just to put that in there too oh man yes yeah, so it's, it's, it is it is a shame how this kind of you know um comes in with the bang goes out with a whimper it really feels i mean i think there's probably a good number of people who don't actually realize that this is how it ended it's kind of a real yeah. it's it's, de- it's definitive as hell as well like it's just it's the elbow and that's it and he gives yeah, him a second one and then that's like well that's pretty much done surely well, and the way the tv is done and because i think february tv gets red hot it just feels like there's a lot of happening especially big angles. weekend tv shows you kind of just don't notice that like oh this big feud that was like so good is just kind of over now i yeah. mean i they, they go their separate ways obviously savage flair jake undertakers we'll get to but yeah it, it just ends sort of abruptly and rick flair makes his first title defense as wf champion and loses to hogan by countout uh Flair's first clean job in the WF took place in Orlando in a tag match. So he didn't even need to be the one who loses. He's in a tag <laughs> match against Hogan and Piper. And this is done after partner uh, Flair's partner, The Undertaker, walks out on him because The Undertaker is uh, going to be turning babyfaces, we'll talk about later. House show numbers, still surprisingly strong, and Meltzer reaffirmed that in 2004. There is a localized promo during this time. I don't know if you caught this, Liam. Uh, oh, yeah, I did. House show in Boston. Hogan promises to defend the WWF title against Piper after WrestleMania. Uh, this was obviously taped before they switched to the double main event. And I, I couldn't believe this when I was looking through history, WWF.com. Ric Flair is pinned every night in those tag matches. And it later become when Undertaker turns babyface, it's Flair and Sid against Hogan and Piper. And Flair is losing non-title cage matches to Piper. What the fuck is going on here? Oh, this is just... It, it doesn't this reek of 2000s booking. Seems Vince will protect his monsters before he protects his champion. Uh, there's a lot this says, I think, about the way that Vince views Ric Flair and views anybody, for that matter, who he puts in the role of the small heel champion. Almost everybody. There's... Yeah, how, if it's a guy he doesn't believe in, because let's be honest, it's not like this is. I mean, this is him. This is Vince making the deliberate choice on these house shows. Who's who's going? Who's going up and who's going down? He doesn't have to have Flair lose the Piper in a non-title nope. cage match. This decision is being made with the idea of okay, we gave him the credibility, and now we can beat him because it doesn't matter because he's the champion, and it's it stinks. I hate this line of thinking. But as we can see, it's there. It starts here's, here. Here's what gets me, because I've read ahead, as you have, I'm sure, in 92. Spoiler mm. alert, it gets worse for, for Titan Sports. Yeah. But you know Hogan's leaving, and you need somebody strong. And Ric Flair, to me, seems like someone who could be pretty strong to help you draw out the houses. Did they just think that they had other options that were going to work. Now we know that it falls up different things fall apart, but to me, it seems, you know, flares hanging around after mania. Why are you beating him and hurting his drawing power? Because yeah. he has no drawing power after mania. No, he's done. So, uh, Ric Flair will make his SWS debut over in the land of the rising sun on April 18th, defending the WF title. Well, no, he won't, but, uh, against old rival <laughs> Janichiro Tenru. Just a side note there. Uh, Dave notes that despite all the rumors swirling, he does not buy for a second that Hogan is quitting after Mania. In fact, 
he'd bet on Flair versus Hogan headlining SummerSlam in Landover. Yes, Landover. <laughs> and it sort of seemed that a Liam, that a Hogan Flair title match was being kept on the back burner based on the television because even after the switch to the double main event, and this is weird, Hogan keeps talking about Flair and the title. Yeah, so it seems logical. And if Vince does, in fact, subscribe to the theory that you never tease a match you don't deliver, which seems completely laughable in 2022 as we talk about it, but that was talked about as his golden rule for years. You don't, you don't plug something you're not going to do. You don't do the fake announcement without thinking that you're going to do it down the line. Surely, to God. Yeah, so I wonder if at this point, February, they're still thinking, okay, we'll go back to Flair Hogan at SummerSlam. Maybe. Because uh, again, at this at this point, okay, so Dave's saying he doesn't buy the rumors that he's going to quit. At this point, there are rumors they're going to quit, despite the rumors circling. And the knowledge that they had was that he was going to go anyway and come back at SummerSlam. So with that said, it would make sense that they're thinking, okay, what would Hogan's comeback match be? Yeah. Which, it, which it, makes it even more baffling why they're beating Flair like a drum. You know, and there, there's, is, and, you know, people are going to, be listening to this and thinking, well, Rain Savage wins at WrestleMania. Oops, I guess I left that cat out of the bag. I discovered something very interesting in the notes. Uh, we'll talk about it next time that may have affected the booking of Flair Savage. Mm, okay. Um, th- th- very interesting. We'll talk about it next time when we break down that feud in full. But I, I do think that they're, they were probably thinking, okay, you know, hopefully, you know, if the scale dies down, we could bring Hogan back. Uh, for SummerSlam and and do him and Flair there. Now, as for WrestleMania, the figure of 20,000 tickets being sold, a completely worked number, and the real number is much lower so far uh, per Dave. Uh, so this is uh, so much for Vince predicting 72,000 on TV like he kept doing. That's me talking. <laughs> now, I don't know your knowledge of Indianapolis, Indiana, the host city of WrestleMania 8, but let's debate it <laughs> as a Mania host city. <laughs> so Indiana is obviously the state over for me. And I'm going to be honest with you. I've never been to Indianapolis in my life. <laughs> not, not even for the Indy 500, Kyle? No, believe that, it or not. Not your thing? That not your no, thing? No, no. And you know, it's hosted big events. I, let me look up. I, I don't want to misspeak here. But I'm pretty sure Lucas Oil Stadium, which is the newer building they have there, I think it's had a Super Bowl. Yes, it absolutely had a Super Bowl. So, And they've had like the Final Four in college basketball. They have had big events there, and it's... You know, in the Midwest, kind of a close proximity to Chicago. But, you know, I just don't think there's any reason to go on a normal. It's it's a weird city. It's like a very new city. Mm. Not like uh, not, not like anything you'd find in Europe. You know, I'm, by the way, the very stereotypical American whenever I go overseas. I'll always go to Cami. You know, Europe's so old. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to say that like a complete freaking a-hole. But uh, in Indianapolis, it feels like a very new city when you go to it. Yeah. Um, kind of like Columbus here in Ohio. But I was thinking of all the one-time host cities of Mania, because there's been so many that have hosted multiple times, it feels like Indianapolis is one of the ones they would, they're would they least likely to ever go back to. Yeah, this uh, when you mentioned, yeah, we put this in the notes here about debating Indianapolis, my immediate thought went to the Seattle Mania at 19, where they blamed it <laughs> for, the, for the shitty buy rate. Oh, it was the market. It's the market's fault. Yes, uh, nothing to do with you know the hideous television and the the god awful card, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Indianapolis, Indiana, it seems again a one and done. 
and, and very much just feels like that's not the place my mind would go to if I was thinking of doing a stadium show. Well, here's the thing. And we had a discussion about this um, on our Facebook group when we were talking about the history of WrestleManias and stuff. At this time, 1992, there were not a lot of big domes in the Mm. U.S. You'd be surprised. I think there was obviously the Pontiac Silverdome where they'd done Mania 3. If you want to expand to North America, there was the Sky Dome in Toronto. But there was the Hoosier Dome. There was the Superdome in New Orleans, obviously. The Mm. Astrodome in Houston. But they didn't go south back in this period. No, not very often. And then the only other one was the Kingdome in Seattle, yeah. um, where the Seattle Seahawks used to play. And that was a real dump. They weren't going to go there. So I guess if they weren't going to New Orleans or Houston, which just weren't WWF territories at those times, I-, I can see why they did it. But other than Seattle, which you mentioned, and Hartford, of course, they will never go back to Hartford, the host of WrestleMania 11. No. I-, I don't think there's a less likely place they're going to go back to for a main event in Indianapolis. I know Boston and Philly. Uh, which hosted Manias 14 and 15. I was thinking about this cold weather places, but they've done New York and Boston and Philly are traditional WWF, WWE towns. If the weather would cooperate, I could see them doing that. Yeah. You know, they've got nice stadiums there, but yeah, Indianapolis, eh, just, I, you know, you hear that city name on their television during this time period. It feels like, eh, I wonder if they regretted that instantly. Well, they 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 clearly had in their mind that they wanted Mania to be in big big stadiums. I mean, they you know, they'd done Mania three. If you think of the, the chronology of it, really, Mania three, obviously, four and five at Trump Plaza because they were paid for it. Mm-hmm. Then right after that, they go to the Sky Dome in Toronto. They wanted the LA Coliseum at seven. Didn't happen. And now they're thinking, okay, the the Hoosier Dome. And so they clearly have it in their mind that that's what they want WrestleMania to be, which is interesting, especially for, for, for what it's going to actually be for the next, you know, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just, um, you know, we'll talk about it next time, you know, how heavily papered it wound up being. Oh, but yeah. uh, uh, things are bad for the WWF right now, <laughs> per Meltzer, uh, you, you don't say. But at least the Saturday Night's main event rating was good. They did an 8.2, uh, 74th out of 92 shows for the week. Uh, and that's up from the average that Fox usually gets in that time slot. They would, of course, get one more Saturday Night's Main Event in Fox towards the end of the year, but that would be the end of Saturday Night's Main Event uh, in the classic era. We would, of course, get those hideous ones in 2006. Yeah. Shall we hit lower on the card? I think we should. Okay. Big one. We've got some big stuff. Oh, this is good. I, I think calling it lower on the card is is offensive to some of this stuff because we get the barbershop angle airs on Wrestling Challenge. Yes. Finally, what about like six weeks after it's taped? Uh, <laughs> obviously, this is the big Shawn Michaels heel turn that everyone knows about. And I asked you, Liam, why is it so iconic? Because of the violence? Is it because Shawn Michaels as a single star wound up working out so well? What is the reason that this is so well remembered? Uh, for me, the first time I ever saw this, it was striking because there was something to me as a kid about the use of glass uh and the little bit of blood that trickles over marty's hand it felt you know because as a kid you hear that it's fake it's fake it's fake someone goes through a glass window and you can immediately understand the gravity of it and it felt serious um i it's it's a very visual angle and it's it's a Phenomenal bit of work, obviously. Once again, Bobby Heenan is absolutely <laughs> unbelievable in this. I forgot. I mean, I've, I've, I must have watched this a hundred times. 
viewing 101 is when I'm listening to the entire thing and just in stitches at Bobby Heenan saying, you know, they got, yeah, they're, they're no good apart. They got to be together. They're no good apart. They need each other. They need each other. What are they going to do without each other? They need each other. And as soon as Sean kicks him, it's like, oh, I knew he was going to do that. He doesn't need Janetti. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the great line on how Janetti was a coward, tried jumping through the window to get away from Michaels. Heenan's <laughs> so, explanations for heel chicanery are just fucking brilliant. Yeah, and very odd too. Airs on Wrestling Challenge. Usually an angle yeah. like this would be superstars. They didn't usually yeah. have the good stuff like that on, on Challenge, the, the Sunday program here in Cleveland. I was wondering if I still had the WWF magazine that Michaels rips up in this mm. segment. I actually do not. Unfortunately, uh. that is like the only issue I'm missing for like three years. Is this the one with Taker on the front? I don't know because I don't have it. Oh, okay, good point. I think it's Taker on the front because I got this issue from a car boot sale in 1996 where I just, it was, here's a bunch of old WF magazines from 91. I'm buying all of these. Um, and yeah, I remember that exact, the, the deal that, that, yeah, it's as it is. Problems with the Rockers. Yeah, okay, I have to cut you off here. A car boot sale. Is that what we call a garage sale here in the United S- States? S- uh, similar. So it's basically you get like about 100 people who drive to a big field, they take all their shit in the car boot. They open up the back of the car boot. They have a little table and they put like little stalls out there and there's like hot dog vans and stuff. And people kind of walk around and just see what crap people are selling from their house. Oh, okay. That sounds like a great time. I do have the February 92 magazine uh, where I inexplicably drew a beard on Ric Flair with my pen. <laughs> uh, that is embarrassing. But it had another Rockers article in there and it, it talked about the split up and it very much hinted at a forthcoming feud that, of course, does not happen. We're going to talk about what happens to Marty Jannetty mm-hmm. outside the ring later on. He misses the Rumble to sell his injuries. Uh, I believe he's replaced by Nikolai Volkov. I believe so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Nikolai what a replacement. Yeah, that very forgettable uh, uh, <laughs> couple minutes he has in the Rumble. Uh, a match with Jannetty versus Rick Martel does air on primetime wrestling before the Rumble, but there is a crawler on the screen making it clear the match was taped before the barbershop angle. Nice little bit of production there from mm. uh, the crew. So let's talk about Shawn Michaels. And That's... Sensational Sherry does an interview on the funeral parlor where she claims she's in love with Michaels. And there are rumors, because Sherry's still managing DiBiase at this time, there's rumors of a DiBiase-Michaels tag team. But those are quickly scrapped to the chagrin of uh, Meltzer. Uh, Of course, what we get is much worse in the tag team department. (laughs) We'll get that on. And Sherry's just going to exclusively manage Michaels instead. Liam, I want you to talk about the importance of Sherry uh, to the Shawn Michaels early in his singles run. And in my opinion... Feel free to disagree or agree. I think it would have been a really lousy idea to take him from one tag team and put him in another. Oh, God, yeah. That's a horrible idea. Yeah, e- even if it would have been a great team and better than what we got, yeah, I, that makes no sense. Uh, it, it, I think this is one of those times, and you saw this occasionally, where it's it's people putting two and two together and coming up with five. The idea that Sherry would go on the funeral parlor dressed like she was as if she was still with DBRC talking about Michaels. I think it's one of those, I would guess where they see that being taped. People put this together. Oh, okay. There's going to be an alliance between the two. In reality, that wasn't the plan. I don't, well, maybe it was the plan. I don't know, but I I never got the sense that they were going to team them up. Yeah. That, that would have been just, just not like the whole crux of Michael's turning on Gennetti is he wanted to stand out on his own. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, what about now, 
you know, Sherry had been, they talk about this in the Michaels DVD. She'd been with Savage previously, DiBiase. Having her be the manager was huge for Michaels. Oh, for sure. Because she's only been with top guys. She's had tons of heat put on her over the course of the last two, three years. Just the optics of her with him. And again, changing, as she did with from, from, from Savage to DiBiase, changing the style to match the guy. Sean's now in this kind of half biker look that he's got, obviously, that he, he, he comes out with. And just seeing her with him and kind of playing again, like in, in the way where like he's the star of the act and she's the garnish to him helps a great deal. And there's a lot of the little cosmetic things that they do. She's in love with him. He's not yep. in love with her. Yeah, yep, exactly. He, she, she's fawning over how special Shawn Michaels is. And Shawn Michaels is, is also fawning over how great Shawn Michaels is. Yeah. So, well, which would be a consistent theme over the next several <laughs> years. Now in his debut, as a single, as a heel, uh, you messaged me about this, and this is something I had completely forgotten until like those on this day accounts that you see on Twitter, yeah, uh, had shown it a few months ago. Shawn Michaels ha- came out to Rhapsody in Blue. What the fuck as is his this music? music? Yeah, it was. It did not fit the act, especially when you compare it to you know Sexy Boy, whether it was Shawn singing it himself or Sherry originally. But yeah, that that didn't fit. Uh, That was bad. That sounded like it was like Days of Our Lives or something like that. (laughs) Meltzer noted, uh, you know, in the second tapings of Michael's, as a heel, uh, he has new, better entrance music, and they also come up with the Shawn Michaels has left the building gimmick. It was, <laughs> I wonder if that was just something they liked that Kurt Henning said and they went with it, or if that was a deliberate thing they wanted him to say and that was a gimmick they had in uh, mind. The, the impression I always had was that that was Hennig. Okay, because it, yeah. it worked great. So, yeah, uh, they were really all in on Shawn Michaels. We've shit on a lot of the new characters over the course yep. of the last couple of years on WWE television. Michaels was a real stat. You could tell. I know it's easy to say in retrospect because of you know what he becomes, but I he really jumped out to me as someone that hey, this is something interesting worth investing in moving forward in 1992. Well, you know why? Because a lot of these presentational changes we're talking about the new you know getting new better music that fits him, the look, Sherry, that Shawn Michaels has left the way. These presentational changes feel like somebody's actually thinking and putting some time into developing this new character they're going to feature. It feels fresh. It's a welcome change from the barrage of repos and skinners and mounties and berserkers that are kind of filling up the undercard. It sticks out like a sore thumb immediately that this is someone who's going to basically be a pretty big player in this company. Yeah, and he was. And something I want to examine a lot as we go through 92 and even beyond is just, you know, the way Michaels and Bret Hart, who of course could become the two big stars mm-hmm. in the down period are presented. Speaking of Bret Hart, he drops the intercontinental title to the Mountie Jan- January 17th in Springfield. So that was one day before that Billy Graham interview that we mentioned earlier <laughs> on. Uh, Meltzer notes, if you were lucky enough to have a satellite dish at that point, you could have seen the early airings of the syndicated shows on Wednesday when they talked about Hart losing the title on the upcoming Friday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, at the previous TV tapings, too, this was another clue the title change may be forthcoming. They did an angle where Brett came back without the IC title, which is always that usual tipping yeah. uh, point that a title change is forthcoming. So um, 
Bret Hart losing to the Mountie. Liam. Terrible fever. Terrible fever he had. It was, uh, 104 degrees, I believe, that's, was the exact that's temperature. It. Uh, that's it. Now, despite speculation, Brett dropping the IC title had nothing to do with negotiating with WCW. Hart won't be jumping to WCW because he discovered his WWF contract had rolled over and he didn't give 90 days notice that he was leaving. So he has a valid one-year contract with the WWF. Yeah, so Jim Hurd is gone. Did they finally heard enough? <laughs> yes, K. Allen Fry. He's there. He's arriving to WWE, and he starts throwing a bit of cash around when he arrives. Jesse Ventura shows up. Um, there are some big contracts dished out, uh, and they were talking for sure. His backup plan was what he called this um, because he he had been told that this is what they were going to do with him. He was a little bit skeptical about whether or not they'd actually follow through with it. Kind of comparing himself to Tio Santana, which I thought was an interesting comparison, saying that you know they 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 use guys up. Um, and once they're done, they hover around, but they hover at a certain level. And he was afraid, I think, that that was what his fate was going to be. Um, the guys that get used up and basically just put people over from that point forward. Um, Pillman was the connection here okay. when when originally negotiating with Kip Fry. He basically told Brett, this is what I'm looking at. Pillman obviously had been given the, the 225 guaranteed with incentives on top um, as his new contract. Kip Fry, uh, Pillman was the, the lightweight champion. Fry was trying to basically show how committed he was to the division and to Pillman, made the big offer, the big contract, and Pillman told him what he was going to be, what he's being offered at the time. I think it's just before he signed it, but he was he was telling Brett what he was being offered, and it was more than Brett was making in the WWF. That two twenty five plus incentives. So Brett basically made it known that if you can come up with that or more for me, then I'm, you know I might be there. You know, like he said, this is backup plan. And then in the fallout of that, I believe it was like conversations with like Jim Barnett and Kevin Sullivan, where he's like, yeah, I'm not really sure about this. And as it turned out, he couldn't have left anyway. Yes, because the deal rolled over. Now, a couple things to talk about here. The Mountie is obviously a shitty Intercontinental Champion under any circumstance. Uh, yeah. I have to tell this story about my buddy Brian. This is a, a guy who, you know, a lapsed fan. Like he watched me as a kid, but then like, you know, like a lot of people stopped and didn't really care about wrestling until he like lived with me for a couple of years. This would have been like got over a decade ago. And I'll never forget, like th this might've even been just like a couple of years ago. He messaged me this because he, he's become a big fan of top rope nation and whatnot. And he, I'll never forget getting a text from my buddy, Brian, where he goes, why was the Mountie, the intercontinental champion? He seemed <laughs> kind of shitty. And I said, and, and I explained, well, it was just a short term thing to get the title onto Roddy Piper. And yes, the Mountie, quickly loses the belt to Roddy Piper at the Royal Rumble. This is Roddy Piper's only singles WF title. We don't want to talk about that tag title run in 2006, do we? Nah, that was that. No, we do not. Okay. Uh, now the WWF, this is now putting the focus back on Brett. They've promised him he'll get the belt back from Piper at WrestleMania in a babyface match. Prior to finding out that Brett was locked into WF long-term, uh, Dave suspected that, that Brett was being lied to by the WF in that scenario. It kind of plays into what you said. Some of the yeah. reservations. Oh, you're taking the title off me. You think you're going to get it. I don't know about if I want to believe you. But um, then, uh, you know, and, and Dave's like, yeah, Brett's probably going to be in WCW by SummerSlam, which does not happen. Uh, right. Later, Dave changes his tune to Brett will get a big push. <laughs> Quite the 180 there, really, yeah. when you think about it. Brett, yeah. Brett's going to be out, to Brett's going to be a star. So Brett, yeah. yeah, like we said, Brett was pretty paranoid. Uh, he thought they were pulling the rug out on him, and he didn't trust where it would end up. Now, had they not done this scenario, Brett to Mountie, Mountie to Piper, Piper back to Brett, 
what else could they have done with the IC title? I, I'm going to tell you right now, this ended up being for the best. I agree. I, there's a couple of booking scenarios you can throw out there involving different people, but in terms of the available people, um, I think this is the best option of all. Be, and, and, and two, not just like defending the belt against Piper, but the optics of him beating Piper for the belt mm-hmm. was very good for Brett. Because again, as we'll, as we'll talk about, um, not a frequently done thing. So it's, it's it was... I don't think that there was anybody else that they could have... Because clearly their idea is you want to give Brett a big win at WrestleMania and a serious win over someone who matters. And Piper's kind of the perfect guy. The only other guy you could think of would be Jake um, because he's on his way out the door anyway. But they had other plans for him. Yes. So, you know, and same with DiBiase. We threw out DiBiase when we were mm-hmm. talking. You know, Brett had no one... To, that was a big problem we talked about when he was the Intercount Champion. It was the the Mounties, the Skinners, the Berserkers, the Barbarians. He didn't have a great opponent. And if the plan is for Brett to lose and then win back the title at WrestleMania and it a big win over somebody of substance, I just don't think you, there's a better scenario out there than what they did. We'll talk about that match because I want to talk a lot about that match and how it is seemingly aged well. Uh, the next episode, we'll yeah. talk about that, the WrestleMania match. But Brett, uh, Brett gets into the Intercontinental title, back into the Intercontinental title scenario uh, by making a challenge to the winner of the Piper Mountie rematch on Saturday night's main event, uh, where Roddy Piper beats the Mountie in 324 to keep the IC title. Mountie poured a drink on Piper and zapped him, but it turned out that Piper was wearing a shockproof suit under his shirt, <laughs> allowing him to grab the Mountie's cattle prod and zap him for the pin. Uh, a tremendous Dave Meltzer review here watchable one and a quarter stars again why does he not say this stuff today watchable yeah i i should add here it's just because i'm loving bobby heaton on this rewatch so much and one of the lines that would earn him much public scorn if he said it today piper <laughs> walking down the aisle in his words kisses the queen of the weight watchers on the way to the ring oh yeah you get oh somebody put up this incredible video i think yesterday this was on twitter i saw that where they were showing the crowd at nitro and there was a you know to be blunt a fairly unsightly woman showed in the audience <laughs> and, and he didn't goes oh <laughs> i've seen that clip that's great oh you have oh, oh, okay. oh yeah oh it's tremendous oh that was my first time seeing it so oh um, that's great i don't know how i missed that originally but uh <laughs> The Intercontinental title, not the only title bouncing around oh. in this promotion, Liam. The world titles bounce around, I see. On to the tag titles. The LOD, Legion of Doom, shockingly dropped them to the makeshift team of Ted DiBiase and IRS uh, February 7th in Denver. A very convoluted scenario, to say the least. This change was apparently supposed to occur sometime before WrestleMania, but Dave says com- completely out of the blue much sooner than anyone expected it it was apparently decided at the last minute going into the show and they didn't even acknowledge the change on saturday night's main event or on the weekend tv uh originally the legion of doom were supposed to work the beverly brothers on saturday's main event it's slaughter and duggan instead Mm. that get that spot although lod was promised no cameras would be present for the title change filmed it anyway but i don't think this ever aired i've never seen it no, neither have I. Never, never seen it. Didn't know it was filmed. Yeah, I didn't need so. Who knows if it was? Maybe that was, again, something that someone told Dave, and I don't know, maybe Hawk destroyed the footage right away. So this title change basically came about so quickly because LOD's contract expires in June, and they're quite openly talking about going back to WCW or Japan, and Vince didn't want to take any chances with the titles. Dave notes 
quote, chances of them leaving aren't slim. Of course, it comes out later, Liam, but the the impetus for the title change wasn't just an expiring contract. No, those steroid tests we were talking about before that no one was failing, well, they are now starting to fail them, and he's not the only one. Yes, Hawk fails the steroid test. Um, You have a very interesting question here. Why the yeah. hell wouldn't you? Why the hell wouldn't you do this on television to get the angle over? This is just such a strange. I mean, again, it's, it's convoluted is the word. I mean, it is just a, such a bizarre explanation for what happens. How they were gonna, t- you know, Jimmy Hart took the disasters out of the match so that it, it, this reeks of we need to get the belts off him now and then come up with a story afterwards because and we're not and we don't have any time. To actually do this on television, we want to take no chances because if it gets out, it's failed the steroid test and we don't do anything, then that's not what we want to have happen right now. So we have to do it now. And it's, but there's absolutely no reason why you would not do this on television. I mean, the whole thing of, oh, well, LOD doesn't want to lose on TV. Fucking, so what? Yeah, you failed the steroid test, hold over their heads. Now, you noted that this is another house show title change in 92, Mm. a second one. I, Perhaps you've had time to look, or perhaps you just know off the top of your head. When was the previous time there was a house show title change at the WF before 1992? So I actually did not research this. Okay. But casting my mind back, the only one that I could think of, and you may have to correct me because I'm not actually sure if this was just a house show or if it... I know that they aired it on television. But I don't know if it was actually, I don't think it was an television show, which would be when Savage beat Tito. Yes, that was, that, the, that, that's, the, I mean, it may have aired on Nessun, but it, and, you know, maybe it aired on primetime, but in terms of like a first run airing, yeah, that, that, that you have to go all the way back it. to 86. Jesus. So six years it had been since there was a title change at a house show, uh, and they do two of them in 92. And do you think they were trying to, you know, beef up house show? Because, hey, come to a house show, you could see a title change. Absolutely. The, 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 the timing of all of it, again, is interesting. They didn't need to do it with Brett on a house show, and they did. They chose to. Um, they probably could have waited and done this on television, too. But, again, I think the it's just this convenience to it. You know, it's like we, we're afraid of houses being down, or at least not what they were. Let's just give them reasons to come out. And that's what this feels like. And, you know, it's funny. House show business, there's no titles changing hands. 87, 88, 89. Business is great. This doesn't help turn it around. It just goes to show. It's not going (laughs) to. No, it it just goes to show. House show business is a result of what is perceived as a strong product. It doesn't matter if people are getting title changes or not. People know what a house show is, uh, you know, whether it's 2022 or 1992. And, you know, this this product just wasn't perceived as being as hot, even though I, I did like this television uh, quite a bit during this run. Now, speaking of television, this tag team title change happens on February 7th, but it wasn't acknowledged on TV for like three weeks, and LOD just keeps carrying the belts around on house shows, and they were even announced as the champions. Yeah, which again is confusing, because when you think about it being a steroid test, if it was a shot, if it's it like something they did as a matter of urgency... The fact that they are continuing working on house shows afterwards with the belts, that kind of flies in the face of the idea that it was an emergency move. So again, they could have done it on television if they wanted to. Yeah, so this is just so bizarre. Eventually, it is announced that DiBiase and IRS win the tag team titles. Uh, they, 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 this is unbelievable. People are just going to laugh at this. 
it's announced that they won the tag team titles with help from new manager Jimmy Hart, who used the megaphone. And Dave notes, this is completely not what happened at all. <laughs> So let's go. I'm going to jump ahead in the notes here because I think it's good. This is what actually happened that night in Denver. The original lineup included a boss man uh, and Santana versus DiBiase and IRS match and the LOD defending the tag titles against the natural disasters. But at the last minute, Jack Tunney comes out and claims the disasters had received enough title shots. So he switches the matches and, just puts DiBiase in IRS in the tag team title match against LOD. And they win when DiBiase pins Road Warrior Hawk after the natural disasters come to ringside and Typhoon hits Hawk with a steel chair while he prepared to hit the doomsday device on DiBiase as Sherry distracted the referee. So Jimmy Hart was not involved. No, not there. Despite what they say on TV. Natural disasters very much involved in the finish. Yes, and the natural disasters help Muddy Inc. So what they but what they do on television is they act like Jimmy Hart weaseled uh, you know the disasters out of the spot himself, and they they turn babyface over the fact Hart moves them out of the picture, and then the title match at WrestleMania is now going to be natural disasters as babyfaces yuck against Muddy Inc. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> There's no, there's no two words that can 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 describe this any better than that. This is, the tag titles are in kind of a, a real desperate position because LOD was strong, but they didn't have a lot to work with around them, and this just kneecaps the tag titles. I, can you imagine if you were there live in Denver that night, and then you see what yeah. they're saying on TV? You're like, what well, was I in the midst of some sort of uh, LSD dream? Fever dream. Not, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy that they just lie over what happens. And um, now, interestingly. WWF Magazine promoted that the title match, tag title match at WrestleMania 8, was going to be DiBiase and IRS against Slaughter and Duggan. And then for yeah. some, it's, we mentioned that Slaughter and Duggan um, replaced LOD on Saturday's main event. They beat the Beverly Brothers. So do you think that this sort of retconning of what happened was like, for some reason, they just decided we don't want to do Slaughter, Duggan, DiBiase, IRS, crap, we've just got to make some stuff up? Absolutely. This this is a okay. promotion with shit flying all over the shop at a minute behind the curtain. Duggan and Sarge absolutely feels like the plan. They're hitting by the way, what a shit tag team. Um <laughs> just the way they're giving each other the thumbs up in their matches, they just they just look like the least cool <laughs> two baby faces you could possibly imagine. But it feels like that's the plan. That's the move they're gonna make. LOD's sudden absence takes place, which leads me to believe that. They decide to do this, and then after the fact, LOD, Hawk fails the test, and they go, okay, we're out of babyface team, we need to make a new one. Duggan and Sarge, they've they've seen the same thing I have, which is that they're awful, Um, and we need something else, and I guess, I don't know why, but they just, that that was the only team that was there that could have probably moved. They probably could have done the nasties um, before they would have done this, I suppose, but I don't know, it was just very bizarre. Interesting to note that when Dave in The Observer was first reporting the title change, he said the plan was going to not only be uh, Duggan and Sarge challenging for the tag titles against Money, Inc., but that LOD and Natural Disasters would have some sort of street fight at WrestleMania 8. Which would make sense for why the disasters cost them the belt, because then yes. they can do the match without the without the titles. But then I I then you're right. You know what? I think we were when we said, oh, this was the tag title change was 
solely done from steroids. It does actually seem that, okay, they could have done it. They should have done it on TV. It was obviously done because of the contract situation. And then steroids may have reared their ugly head because when was the Lubbock taping again? Um, Lubbock, Texas. Oh no, that was actually on January 27th. Oh, okay. There so, you go. and maybe I don't know. Then I don't. So, it, it, it's a it's a convoluted timeline with Hawk failing a steroid test, them wanting to get the titles off LOD. But yeah, natural disasters is baby faces. That that freaking leaks. I do not know why they thought that needed to happen. Conceptually, it's a terrible team to be baby faces. And now we've got a tag division with no good faces and no good heels because IRS through osmosis made DBRC dull to me as a kid. Yeah. So we've got to talk about this. Okay, I don't, you know, people, obviously DiBiase is great, and I, I, Rotunda is a guy who most people don't think is, like, one of the all-time worst. People, I think his rep is, oh, solid but unspectacular worker, but Muddy Inc. is just the death of the WWF Tag Team title division. The, I hate Muddy Inc., and I have a question to you. What would you have done to save the tag titles? okay. Liam, Legion of Doom, we got to get the belts off of them. Here's a blank slate. Do something. I, I yeah. have an idea, and I almost wonder if we should try to say it at the same time, because... Okay, we can try that. Uh, do you want, I mean, this, this could be really lame podcasting. I, I, I thought it... I, was gonna, <laughs> I, was, I, I wanted to kick it to you, and then I remembered in my head I'd written out, I'm like, oh, what if Liam and I say the same thing at the same time? That would be fun, right? Yeah, okay. this will be our Jake the Snake Roberts moment for the Rumble 92. Yes, okay, so I had an idea involving DiBiase in a different partner that isn't IRS and isn't Michaels. Okay, let's Yeah, me too. Three, okay, in three, let's say the person's name. Okay. One, two, three, Martel. Rick Martel. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, uh, all right. We didn't plan it, folks. I, I had a feeling that you were going to agree. When you, when you said that I had another, because you wrote in your notes, I have a candidate also. Yep. So why do you think Martel would have made sense? Martel and DBRC are both in a similar position at this point in time where they both had their big singles run. DBRC had kind of fallen off since the loss to Virgil at SummerSlam. He really, they, they did not have anything really, really for him in the aftermath. They were going to do the Steamboat feud, which again, even then, which sounds great on paper, but when you actually think about where the dragon was in the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. that's a demotion. Yes. relative to what DBRC had done before. When that doesn't happen, it's, they, they, they move into El Matador and we see a series of vignettes where he's walking around these <laughs> presumably Mexican neighborhoods, including yeah. one vignette that is this month, I think it's in January actually, where he walks up to a sleepy Mexican who's just sl- snoozing under a tree, wakes him up and reveals that he is in fact a fan of Tio Santana. Yes, so we, we had teased those, because I was like, what happened to this program? When did I, I'm like, I know I didn't imagine, yes, that they do air a few in January, and that just shows how sudden this changes, because they're DiBiase's working Santana at the houses, and they just completely abandoned that feud. Yeah, and so I feel like Martel was in kind of a similar position, obviously. After the Jake thing, he takes time off, comes back. He doesn't really have a ton to do. You can tell they don't want to focus on him in a singles position all that much because he's just kind of, you know, on television, he's kind of messing around with, like, Tornado and those guys. He's not in the the thick of it. And so those two guys together both have cachet to them. They've both got a lot of built-up equity. They would work well as a team with the you know, the millionaire and the model and stuff like that. Yeah, that's could, what I was thinking. They could have they could have done a whole bunch. Of, not that it's even remotely the same, because I'm talking about two guys who are much, much younger. 
but flaunting their wealth and their looks in in very much a Gino and Chris kind of style, but with you know amped up to the with the WWF style. Uh, I think it could have been very very entertaining, and certainly more entertaining than Irwin. Yes, that they could have come up with like a name with money and fashion. I, I guarantee, you know, um, you know, <laughs> Pat Patterson certainly uh, you had other things on his mind in early 1992, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, he could have come up with something funny. Now, you noted that a new babyface team was needed once they lost the Rockers. And yeah. the disasters were... Okay, again, blanks. I was really racking my brain thinking about outside WWF. Who could they have brought in? Oh, man. I This is this is tough. You've got Owen, who feels like he's ready-made for like a, 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 a quick-moving babyface team. And obviously, they'd lost, as we'll talk about. Anvil's not long for the world. So no. the new foundation ain't going to cut it either because they're gone. So uh, you feel like if you could pair Owen up with somebody, that would have been great. I'm not really sure who's available that you could have done it with that fits the bill. Yeah, so, and do you know what's funny is they, the Rockers do the breakup, and it felt like the right time for them to break up. But my God, if there was ever a time that they needed the Rockers, exactly. they needed the promotion to be tag team champions, it, was, it feels like 92. All right, so I was thinking about who could have been important. Because, you know, obviously the Steiners come in at the end of 92, but that just wasn't a possibility here in early 92. I, I was really scraping the bottom of the barrel, like young pistols, although Tracy's heading for smoky mountain. So I, is he going to accept that? Yeah. I guess, yeah. I guess it's kind of your, your smoking gun style tag team a little early. Yeah. And you know, I'm just a standard babyface team. I, I was shooting for the moon here. Crawford and furnace. I don't think they're going to, Oh you man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think you could pay them enough in 92. They're no, I was going to say, yeah, and, and that shows you where WWF is in the pecking order that you couldn't go and get a team from all Japan. I mean, I'm, I'm not even saying, like, you know, something preposterous, like, you know, fucking pay Masawa and Kabashi to come in. I mean, that's obviously <laughs> not going to happen. But, like, yeah, you can't even pay, like, the secondary tag team title team to come in. I, I just don't think there was anything around. And, you know, you you look at everywhere but WCW is dried up, pretty much, stateside yeah. at this point. It, t- it takes a while for... Because at this point, it's like you've kind of got the the Joel Goodhart stuff going on around this time, and I think global, yeah, global's knocking around. I think that you, honestly, to me, and I hate to say this because I really don't like them, but turning the nasties babyface to feud with the millionaire and the model seems like the most natural fit. The the two everyman slob, whatever the hell, against the two millionaire prima donnas or whatever seems like a natural feud and and one that i think the jeff could do well i'm not really all that excited about it because the nasty boys don't really do it for me but they were kind of played out as heels anyway and, and well that's what they went up doing by the end of yeah. the, it's funny the nasty boys turn baby face the same way the natural disasters did so yeah which oh yeah which is yeah pretty lazy but um yeah, there, there were the tag divisions dying here i think we've spent quite a bit of time on it i knew i wanted oh there's something else i wanted to mention about irs so remember we had that discussion about um, how maybe they didn't need to have put Bobby Heenan with Ric Flair yeah. right away? Okay, so on the Top Rope Nation Facebook group, because a lot of people listen to that show over there, they talked about this. And, you know, how every heel just needed a manager in the world of WWF, it seemed. Even someone like Ric Flair who could talk. And we were talking about what heels weren't given managers. And you could even, like, it's like even DiBiase was given some, like, Virgil. He, there, yeah. there was window dressing. So if you extend it, it was really Jake Roberts in 86 was like the last heel that they didn't bother to give a manager to. And it's yeah. interesting. He was a unique guy because he turns baby face because his unique charisma. Why do I bring this up right here? 
IRS didn't have a manager for like a year. And now he does with Jimmy Hart. And also does not have a unique charisma. No, he doesn't. And he, it, it's funny that, like, of all the heels not to give a manager to, fucking it's... Irwin Arsh. <laughs> the guy who needed all the win. Although, again, if you have, like, you know, again, I mean, think about him in WCW with Alexandra York. You know, it's like that 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 character in WCW didn't have the flash and they, they stuck him with her. Yeah. And then the, for some reason they didn't hear. But yeah, so Money Inc., more like Money Stink. Hey, yo. Um, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Rick Martel, what does he wind up doing? Um, between now and WrestleMania, well, he has a match on primetime against Kerry Von Erich, where Lord ha- Al Hayes, your boy, uh, calls <laughs> Kerry Kevin. Yes, he calls Kerry Kevin Von Erich. And a brief discussion of Kevin as a businessman ensues. Fucking state of this commentary team. This this would not even make it to dark. AEW dark. This would have been edited off. This would have been cut. Lord Alfred Hayes talking about how great Kevin Von Erich is here in as this a- match with Rick Martel. <laughs> As a businessman, not as a pro wrestler, but like he's like, oh, yes, I believe he has a business and he's quite well. Um, Here's a sentence that you never want to open a Wrestling Observer newsletter and read. Uh, expect, <laughs> expect a Repo Man versus Boss Man program. This, the early promos that air in January for the Boston House shows to push this feud absolutely <laughs> expose how awful this Repo Man character is. Because Boss Man's trying with everything he can to make something out of the fact that the Reaper Man targets poor people and how poor people look up to the law. And so he's got he's to beat Repo Man to kind of you know, restore the faith in law, order, and justice. It was quite the stretch to get me to care, and it failed. But yeah. Repo Man is terrible. Yeah, and they do end up on opposite sides of the eight-man at uh, Mania, for those yeah. of you keeping score at home. All right, let's talk about something memorable that happens uh, here. Uh, Undertaker. Shawn Michaels has the career-defining heel turn, while Undertaker has the career-defining babyface turn mm-hmm. uh, at uh, the TV tapings. He's, he stops Jake Roberts from hitting Savage with a chair and then fully turns uh, on a funeral parlor segment where Jake DDT's Paul Bearer. Got to talk about both these angles. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I know that there is a lot of love <laughs> for the production of the chair angle which is great because i remember i had not actually seen this since probably about 94 i hadn't seen this angle in years and i remembered it vividly for again the nature of oh my god he's behind the curtain it's and this is going through first great tension and and the point oh of course the great technical standpoint of you these were taped on different days right yes Phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. stuff. So they obviously they shoot. It's, it's after Satellite's main event. So Jake gets beat, goes to the back. Savage mm-hmm. is walking down the aisle and they show the footage, which actually is fucking great, by the way, because they act like it's like it's, it's Vincent Heenan on contrary. And they act like the show's off the air and they're talking to each other as, as Savage is just kind of leaving yes, the ring. Yes, that is and, awesome. And, with, and Vince, with, is with. Like, <laughs> Vince is like, I thought that was one of your worst efforts. <laughs> so Bobby... <laughs> That is great. Yes, that that was tremendous. So yeah, he's walking with Liz. And I remember watching this as a kid live, this angle. And I was like freaking out. I was like, oh my God. And like, so, you know, Savage and Liz walking back together. Jake on the other side of the curtain, he's been beaten. He's holding a chair. He's like, I don't care which one of them walks through first. They're going to get it. And Vincent Heenan realized it. And even Heenan, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of plays into it. Like, will somebody please get word? Don't let them go through that curtain. Don't let them go through that curtain. And, um, you know, they walk through the curtain. Jake's about to swing, and Undertaker is standing there to stop the chair. Yep. 
it's great stuff. And then the the funeral parlor at you know Jake wants to know whose side are you on? He says to the Undertaker, "Not yours, not yours." Yeah, and I this is actually phenomenal because I again another angle that because I only really saw this in clipped form. The WrestleMania 8 video where they recap this shows the DDT, it shows the hand in the coffin, it shows the chair shots. I didn't remember the fact that Taker just drags the coffin behind him and stalks Jake. Like, that's not going to stop him. Like, he's just like, like just the undead zombie. Uh, and Jake's reaction to that, too, is just fantastic. Well, This is a way better angle than I remembered it being. Yeah, it really was. And as far as timing of turning the Undertaker babyface, this felt like the right time. The crowd, you know, certainly was, you know, had no problem cheering him after he no. turns. No, um, it, it had been coming. Yeah, and so you, you noted already, of course, that, yeah, the footage of Savage walking down the aisle was shot one day. Uh, the footage of Jake waiting for behind the curtain was shot on the next day. So, yes, uh, tip of the cap went from uh, Mr. Dave Meltzer to WWE production there. Uh, interesting here, now, you talk about the reaction and the crowd being ready uh, to cheer the Undertaker before the funeral parlor segment, where you know Jake DDT's Paul Bear and Undertaker no sells the chair shots, gets his hand caught in the casket. To make sure everyone at that taping knew the Undertaker was going to turn babyface, they had Mounty uh, do a dark segment where he challenged anyone in the building to a fight, and the Undertaker answers and no sells four shock stick attempts and squashes the Mounty with the tombstone. And I, there was also an altercation, I believe and a different TV taping involving Taker and Mr. Perfect uh, to get the uh, desired reaction. Yeah, if I, if, I was the, if I was Jacques Rougeau, I'd have been typing up my resume at that point, I think. <laughs> yeah, that is always a real, uh, you're getting it sent to the bottom of the card. Um, it's going to be Taker and Jake at Mania, despite Jake missing the next set of TV tapings with no explanation. Well... Yeah. We'll, uh, <laughs> no explanation, then, huh? Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that next time. Uh, Roberts, by the way, had a rare match against Hulk Hogan uh, on that Springfield card where Brett dropped the IC title to the Mountie. Yeah. Uh, Hogan was a sub for Randy Savage, actually. So that the match did happen once. Yeah, least. yeah, because there's always that talk about that snake pit angle. You know, what was that? You know, where Jake DDT'd Hogan allegedly and the crowd cheered in 86. But uh, yeah, Hogan works Jake in 92. And uh, we've got our top four matches now set for WrestleMania, Liam. We, too, oh. we do indeed. Taker and Jake is on the docket. Um, Brent, Brent Piper. Piper. Yeah, and the two top matches. So realistically speaking, this is the best thing to do to preserve The Undertaker, right? What you... Because in an alternate in an alternate universe, when you look at the history of heels who get their run at the top and then go down, if he stays heel, I think you kind of wonder what his run would have actually been when you look at guys like Earthquake. I mean, yeah, he may have stuck around for a little while because he was such a hit as a character, but if you don't turn him babyface, he just stays heel. I mean, the pattern in WF is that heels, you know, they tend to lose quite a lot in the end. Yeah, and if he doesn't turn before Mania. That's what I mean, yeah. The streak. Is it in jeopardy? Yeah, we we, um, we talked about how it was so important, you know, not like rushing him into Hogan for WrestleMania uh, the previous year. And WrestleMania, when we were just like trying to come up with any idea that wasn't Sergeant Slaughter. So, yeah, yeah. Th this was great for uh, Undertaker. I thought the TV, like I said earlier, was tremendous in February. And I'll argue this. I think the top four matches for WrestleMania 8, I'll stack them against any top four matches of any of the early WrestleManias. Ooh, on paper, I mean, you don't have like the Hogan Andre, the big drawing card. 
Mm. Like, you know, may- maybe you could say WrestleMania. Th- What's the fourth biggest match on WrestleMania three? Is it the six man? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Okay. Maybe those top four are better than the, these top four, just because you have this such a super strong main event. But, you know, they don't do, we'll get into it, they don't do like a million matches at this WrestleMania. It feels pretty, despite all those scales, it feels WWE TV is strong. Yeah, the, t- the TV's good. It's pretty focused. Again, we get, it gets more focused. But at this point, it's fairly early doors. It's only February, but we are still getting the teasers in those early Flair Savage promos about how we know something you don't know to Randy Savage. Yes, they, they tease it. And then, of course, the big reveal will come in March. And we're, yeah, we'll hit that next time. But let's just do our uh, one of our favorite sections every time. Coming and going. Oh, this is always a blast. Yes. Uh, so after that barbershop angle airs, uh, involving Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. <sighs> well, Marty gets himself indefinitely suspended by the WWF because he was arrested at 2 a.m. on January 25th following an altercation outside a Tampa, Florida nightclub with police. Jannetty's female companion, Angela Ialici, maybe? Uh, 19, like 19 years old, uh, was, arrested, <laughs> was arrested by police. Uh, after trying to use a fake ID, at which time Janetti reportedly grabbed the cop. That's never a good idea. And it's especially not a good idea when you're found to be in possession of a gram of cocaine, less than a gram of cocaine, uh, I guess, according to reports. Presumably, they'd done most of it by that point in the evening. It was 2 a.m. <laughs> Don't advise. I'll tell you what, it's never a good idea to keep doing them after 2 a.m., man. Just, that's a long night. You just uh, got to get rid of it. Yeah, Janetti was charged with possession uh, of cocaine, possession of drug paraphernalia, and resisting arrests with force. Uh, he did work the SWS show, uh, but a match taped for syndication does not air. Just horrible timing for Janetti. So here's what's interesting, okay? Um, per reports, they say it was supposed to be Janetti and Michaels at WrestleMania 8, which makes, makes a lot sense. of sense. And it was, yep. te- it was very much teased a feud, like I said, in WF Magazine. But Meltzer reports... That Janetti, because he'd given notice. You talked about this, how he'd been tricked by Sean. Yep. And Kale and Fry wanted to bring Janetti to WCW as a Rockers knockoff tag team with Shane Douglas. Well, they don't want him now. Janetti, <laughs> after this arrest. So, Real this, Tilly Blanchard-esque. <laughs> yes, yes. This was a uh, kind of a career killer for Marty, this arrest. And a sign it of was... to come. It was brutal. Yeah, the first of many times, I think. Oh, the second, actually, of many times that Marge would would be given his walking papers from the WWF. It did feel like a bigger deal that he was gone for longer when he when he finally appears later in the year. I do, I do kind of like the way that it works out. Yes! Um, yes! Oh, I want to talk about that at some point. I, I think it totally works out for Michaels not feuding with the former partner and just kind of I spreading agree. his wings. Yes! I agree. He, he spreads his wings. He gets to have his own identity. And then there's the ghost from his past in the mirror. And it's brilliant. I think the way that it works out is actually for the best. I'm sure Marty didn't feel that way when he was in the clink on, yeah. on, on January 25th, 1992. Um, yeah, they, they clearly picked Sean to be the single star. At this oh, point, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. He had the better head on his shoulders. But yeah, I wonder if they would have, you know, Marty would have got some. Because by the time he comes back, he's very much a guy, uh, you know, who's just going to put heels over. Maybe he gets a surprise win. Uh, but yeah, not much. Now, yeah. uh, no truth to the rumor, Liam, that Mr. Perfect is jumping to WCW. His back is still messed up and he just signed a new WWF contract. Well, good. Because yeah. him, him, him as the executive consultant is tremendous. Works yes. out great. Yes, uh, Crush gets a tryout at the TV typings uh, without any face paint this time. Uh, he finishes up his work in uh, 
Pacific Northwest Wrestling on January 25th, same day Janetti gets arrested there. So uh, <laughs> kind of a tale of two people there. Uh, I don't know how many times we've talked about this, but Conan as Latin Fury, uh, per Meltzer, gets over well again in a tryout uh, as he will be as he was working against future AAA rival Art Bar. That's me noting that. Obviously, Dave didn't notice <laughs> it at the time. Note it, uh, know it at the time. Uh, he's going to debut the robot suit after WrestleMania. Max Moon. Again, how many times have we heard Conan to the WWF this is like at this a, point? This is like a year-long story. This is why, when I think back to when this actually was, my time frame is all over the map. I'm like, when did Conan come in? Because it was talked about forever that he was coming in with this mythical robot suit that in the end just looks like shit anyway. <laughs> like, we don't really get to see what this is supposed to be. It's it, This is just one of those... Uh, again, when you think about, like, um, they're desperate for baby faces here, I think is the message. Crush gets a tryout. Conan, they're looking for new guys in that role. The next guy we're going to talk about, obviously, <laughs> they're looking for new, they're looking for fresh faces. And it's kind of why I think we were sad that Marty didn't really get to kind of hit the ground running. Yes. And, uh, okay, baby faces that do come in. We talked about it a little bit last time. Tatanka, we have more vignettes. Something about a river. I wish I would have written the line down. It was, I swear to God, it was something like, the river winds and like he was comparing it almost like he was like comparing his booking trajectory to a river. <laughs> this is the kind of promo that I could imagine somebody's doing today, frankly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, he debuts uh, beating Pat Tanaka. And uh, I- I'm kind of shocked that Vince had Tatanka beating Tanaka. Yeah, that's that, that that's someone that's that's not he was having an off night. Vince. Yes. Uh, now, Vince also was confused, or he just didn't want to, to commit to an official tribe for Tatanka. <laughs> this was very bizarre. So I think they eventually go with Lumby, correct? The Lumby, Lumb- or, or Lumpy, as, as, as he yeah. likes to say. Yeah, well, in this debut match, McMahon makes it seem like he's part of every tribe. And I am no Native American scholar, but I don't think it works that way. No, me either. Vince is very weird on commentary. He's trying to explain that Tatanka represents all natives by, uh, he's got some symbols of the Sioux there, and he's got, uh, you know, the Lumby uh, heritage on his other leg, and very kind of, and like, even just the nature of, like, saying, this is Chris Chavez, and he's taken the name Tatanka. Yeah, what like, do you think about them, like, saying, oh, he's Chris Chavez, but, like, then he's Tatanka. By the way, I've got to find this. Uh, I've got to find something here about Tatanka that I thought of. There was this tremendous article in a WF magazine which had him posing next to an eagle. I'm not making this up. <laughs> I don't know why they rushed this to television with using the Chris Chavez name. Because I mean, the only reason they, they used that name was referencing it. Like, oh, and here's a newcomer that's coming up and they throw to the vignette type of a thing. There's no need. I mean, this The character wasn't finished, clearly. They didn't know what they wanted it to be. So, uh, yeah, bit messy. Soar like an eagle. One day, when clouds upon when clouds upon the sun cast strange shadows upon the countryside of rural Robeson County, North Carolina, a young boy gazed at the sky. His name was Chris. Chris Chavez. <laughs> Tatanka sets his course. Who wrote this one? This is Keith Elliott Greenberg or something? Oh or yeah. Louis G and Frito. This was a. This is why I brought this out. So. It actually says in this article, WF Magazine, well, first of all, almost a century later, the Lumbees confronted the Ku Klux Klan and drove the hooded terrorists out of the country. My God, there's his <laughs> next feud. <laughs> yes, but uh, uh, the article says uh, Chavez's classmates voted him, quote, best student in his junior and senior years, and he was listed in the National 
who's who among American high school students? What? This is in WWF Magazine. I'm going to see Chris Chavez. Who's who? I want to see if I can get anything on this. Who's who among American high school students? Okay. All right. I'm going if to... If what I just... What have you discovered? Liam? <laughs> I have discovered Chris Chavez, a.k.a. Tatanka's LinkedIn page. Oh no. no oh, this no. can't this can't be real. This can't be real. What is it listed? Does it list this stint with a million dollar corporation? It does. It does. Now, <laughs> this it, really. it also lists him as the president of Tatanka Enterprises. This can't be real. <laughs> so it does actually note who's who among American high school students, top five percent of the nation's students academically and involvement with the school. Oh, fuck off, Chris Chavis. <laughs> this can't be. Somebody just had to, like, just make this up. This can't be real. Unbelievable. Anyway. Shameless. Shameless. Back to, back to the notes here. Uh, Papa Shango <laughs> debuts. <laughs> the hits keep rolling. Oh, uh, this vignette before his debut would not have got me excited, by the way. Well, I'll tell you what would have got me excited was to be live in attendance for this squash match where his skull caught on fire and the ring crew had to put it out while the match was going on. Yeah. Not his actual skull. Yeah, he carried one to the ring for those yes, who, uh, who didn't see. Uh, Hercules and Greg Valentine are both gone. I know this troubles you tremendously. Although oh, very Her sad. Yeah, Hercules is still working shows on a nightly basis, now as a baby face, before he finds a new deal elsewhere. How nice of Vince. And there is an incredible performance versus Sid and <laughs> MSG in February that I know you want to talk about. Oh, fitting tribute to Sid's F against El Gigante at the previous year's Super Brawl. Um, I don't know if phoning it in is an <laughs> adequate description for Mr. Hernandez's performance on this evening. He sleepwalks his way through a very short match, takes one of the lazier powerbombs you'll see, a real house show powerbomb from Sid here, uh, and then just kind of gets up and just is walking around the ring like he's just got out of bed. Unbelievable. In Madison Square Garden, no less. Against the guy who's going to headline versus Hogan at WrestleMania. <laughs> Uh, now, Herc's old partner, Paul Roma, is not in much better shape. He's decided to quit the wrestling business altogether and become a pro boxer for Bob Arum. Roma dropped from 250 to 215 pounds. I wonder how, wonders Meltzer, uh, says Meltzer. And <laughs> this is incredible. Roma had to, to get his release. Roma had to agree not to give Titan any bad publicity and he could keep his glory nickname. So he's going to be like Paul Glory Roma or something as a boxer. Jesus. Well, old Glory immediately goes on a radio show after getting oh, his release. Glory. And he calls his WWF tenure six years of hell. <laughs> and in case you're wondering, Liam, uh, Roma's boxing debut ends with a fourth round KO loss when his manager threw in the towel. Not sure if it was because Roma was getting his ass beat or his managers didn't want to be there anymore. Um, <laughs> speaking... <laughs> It says something when, uh, you know, the more favorable uh, career move for Paul Roman was getting booed out the building at Slambury 93 when he gets introduced there. But uh, I, I, I do appreciate the fact that this man wanted to keep his glory nickname. Yes, yes. And, and then and he's like, oh, don't worry, I won't badmouth you. And then immediately does. I Six years it. of hell. I respect it. Uh, now... Uh, someone else, uh, you know, uh, leaving is the Barbarian. 
uh, a hideous count-out loss to the Berserker, uh, where he breaks Fuji's cane over his head. You want to talk about this? <laughs> not, not tremendously, but this this airs on television. Heel, heel, pretty much. Barbarian Berserker. They, it kind of feels like they're trying to turn him babyface, but it's just an absolutely dreadful match. Fuji blows the one spot he has to do, which is pull the top rope down using the cane. He misses. And he's late, and then he misses. This just, and then at the end of the match, yeah, so it's like a crappy count out, and then he gets in the ring and breaks the cane over his head. And then before you know it, he's getting squashed by Randy Savage a week later, and he's pretty much done. Yeah, and what's incredible about the count out is like, because I don't know, Fuji probably didn't want to move fast or something, but like Barbarian and Fuji are moving at like a snail's pace, and Barbarian just gets counted out because they're walking around <laughs> so slow. Uh, Barbarian did team with his old friend, the Warlord, who also isn't long for the world. We This was a rumored uh, a few times on house shows. We, so we, we, part four, we said it was a rumor that maybe the powers of pain would be getting back together. They did briefly, but it was to do jobs and uh, Barbarian is gone. Interestingly, he, Hercules and Valentine would all wind up in WCW by the middle of the year. Yeah, God, the 92 WCW is just fucking weird. Billy, yeah. Billy Jack comes in as black blood as well. And Warlord, there goes the beef. Yeah, they're they're good. But, well, what about when Hercules debuts as a super invader oh, in that yeah. in, in the midst of that incredibly racist promo by Harley Race and Ron Simmons? <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hercules also uh, Savage is just getting to beat all the guys who are leaving because he beats Hercules on uh, Herc's way out the door. You talked about it earlier. Jim Neidhart is gone with uh, no explanation, says Dave. So that means no more new foundation. Uh, pretty quick. Owen's going to work singles as the Rocket, but there is a story, and it's tremendous. What about Jim Neidhart's uh, uh, leaving this company? Yeah. So, so his exit, uh, his exit is that Jim Neidhart basically had to take the drug test, and he refused to take the tests basically well refused in so many words he basically was stalling all night long didn't want to take the test probably because he knew what the results were going to be well exactly because he knew what the results were going to be and then pretty much just left the building without taking it um after delaying the agents all evening long vince fired him the next day called him in and fired him so neidhart in response picked up a tv monitor and because he believed that chief j strongbow uh, stooged him off he threw the monitor at him which missed uh, but it did break a TV executive's foot who was standing nearby. So what a great exit for, for the anvil. And you, remember, this was a shot put guy. So, man, he probably got some air under that TV. He would have got some distance. That, that the, TV, the, the actual the exec might have been like, um, you know, he might have been a ringside for all I know. But uh, <laughs> no, and we, and we don't see Neidhart in the company again for a couple of years, two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, 94. Uh, mm -hmm. Dino Bravo beats the Barbarian on January 20th in Montreal in what was billed as Bravo's retirement match. It was not. No, no. The thought of that match is just hideous. Yeah, Montreal. This may be the, this the most infamous match in Montreal history, because it probably should be. Yeah, I know. Well, okay. Talk about infamous. At a house show in Vegas, Jimmy Snuka no-shows, so Shawn Michaels wrestles the Silver Shadow, who was apparently, per Dave, the guy who sets up the ring. Snuka <laughs> is later suspended uh, for failing a steroid test, so he's number two, and then fired. Oh, here we go. Now we're getting into it. So we got Hawk. We got Neidhart refusing to take the test. Herc's out the door. Barb's out the door. Warlord's not long for the world. Jimmy Snooker suspended for failing the test and fired afterwards. And then he Jimmy immediately... <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure J Jimmy immediately then went to uh, meet up with OJ on the golf course to find the real killer, I think. Yeah. 
going to say, think about what it would take for Jimmy Snooker to get fired from this promotion. I know. <laughs> Let me be very clear about something. Uh, Jimmy Snooker's 1989 to 1992 comeback run is only the second biggest crime he ever committed, okay? <laughs> but, but for most people, it would be the worst because what a shit run. I was so happy as a kid when Jimmy Snooker came back because I missed like his glory period. It mm. sucks so bad. Um, speaking of people who probably wish it was 1984 again, Kerry Von Erich, uh, while oh, suspended boy. for a myriad of reasons, is arrested in Richardson, Texas and charged with two felony counts of prescription fraud. Days later, police learn that Von Erich gave them a false address and phone number following his address. Kerry uh, reportedly is going to enter a drug rehab program uh, the following week. Both of those felony counts carry 10-year prison sentences. Dave does not think he's going to serve any time, and the WF is saying he'll be welcomed back upon completion of rehab, which actually does happen. Yeah. But uh, this is a sad story. Uh, Fritz Von Erich, he, he had gone on TV and claimed Carrie's only addicted to painkillers from the motorcycle accident. Uh, Fritz also admitted that if Carrie isn't successful in this rehab attempt, he should probably get out of wrestling for good. Oh, yeah, well, I think that, frankly, I think we're kind of long past that point. At least Fritz didn't blame a Japanese wrestler for the forged prescription this time. Yeah. Um, oh, no! <laughs> the Kerry stuff, which obviously comes out in the year after what inevitably happens, is, is extremely sad and bizarre. Again, just think of this. Kerry Von Erich in Texas, not able to get a prescription. How yeah. far has that man fallen? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, yeah. I mean, Jesus you know. Christ. I mean, I mean this, it, was, this... it was probably for his best to actually get arrested given the place he was in, but yeah, you're right. I mean, of course, the, but I mean, the, Va the Von Erics ain't running that town anymore, it sounds no, like. No, they are not. They're a long way from that. And, uh, and, and uh, like we say, after, after what happens, some of the stuff that comes out in the Observer about Kerry's behavior around this time is just very sad. Yeah, he's going to be a, a big subject of coming and going uh, probably the next time we do mm -hmm. that. Uh, it's like we're actually not going to do a coming and going for our next episode, but uh, after that we will. Ultimate Warriors friends indicate he has no interest in returning to wrestling. Who is that that came back then? I don't know. It was the second Ultimate Warrior. And by <laughs> way, uh, also, who are his friends? I know, that's, a, that, that's, that's the first the, I've heard of this. Yeah, this is a man who had Linda McMahon induct him into the Hall of Fame because oh, no one else God. liked him. Good God. All right, Liam, just some odds and ends uh, to go through here. Some very, the real bizarre notes uh, that we found in The Observer before we get to some of the real juicy stuff and a tease for part two of 1992. So a house show in Minneapolis on December 28th, so going back to the end of 91, drew 9,000 people, but the majority of them actually walked out on the last match. This is including The Observer correspondent. That last match, you ask? was Roddy Piper and the Bushwhackers versus the Beverly <laughs> Brothers in the Genius. I don't know if this was anything to do with the Beverly Brothers and their, uh, you know, anti-gay ways that we spoke of in the last episode. <laughs> the the, the Whackers doing the march? Yeah. yeah. It, took me, it took me quite a while, Kyle, to get that image out of my head after the previous podcast. Freaking sheep fuckers, man. I can't believe they did that. <laughs> Yes, but uh, those are the, those two homophobes apparently, uh, you know, it didn't it didn't work out for them in the main event spot. So uh, it would probably never happen again. I've never had a higher opinion of Minneapolis than I do right now, hearing that they walked out on that main event. Okay, now he, speaking of Roddy Piper and house shows, this is a finish that I absolutely want to see. He works Skinner. Okay, yes, I want to see this, yes. And Piper wins, obviously, but he wins by crawling under the ring and coming out the other side for a roll-up finish. <laughs> I like stuff like that. Yes. Uh, ratings for primetime, they rebounded a bit, mostly because football's done for the year. So not just a, uh, you know, modern also, era where we talked about that. 
I also credit the fact that the show's significantly better. Yes, it is absolutely. Like we said, uh, a guy named Lee Armstrong got a tryout, looked terrible, and ended up doing a bunch <laughs> of TV jobs later in the show. And then this is a great one. This vintage Dave here. J.W. Storm looked bad, but had that, quote, look no one is supposed to have. <laughs> uh, the Winnipeg Sun. What an article this is on January 30th, where Bob Moley, Mole, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, but he's an offensive lineman with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers of the CFL and a silver medalist in freestyle wrestling in the Olympics. He talked about pro wrestling. Quote, they're all charlatans and shams who couldn't <laughs> wrestle their way out of a multiplication problem. Mole, Moley, also estimated that 90% of the WWF's wrestlers couldn't pass a drug test. Same number as Billy Graham. Uh, yeah. after, after saying that, knocking the wrestlers uh, for having cosmetic beauty and saying the guys wouldn't be able to survive against him or any good amateur heavyweight, uh, he was asked who the best athlete among the wrestlers was. And guess who he picked, Liam? <laughs> of all the people. All Kogan. <laughs> uh, of course he and, did. And then he uh, was asked who he thought the worst athlete in the WF was, and he picked the big boss man. I'd be pretty pissed about that if I was Ray, to be honest. Or did he not see the bump at the 92 Rumble? Uh, you know, Hogan, Hogan, maybe it's because I've watched some of the later Hogan stuff in the last week. Hulk Hogan is the best athlete amongst the wrestlers. I mean, did, the not, best did, he not see, did he not see the Rumble at all to see Ric Flair's great performance? I guess not. Fuck the CFL's West Division. What do you got to say about that? Okay. <laughs> I was actually looking for dirt on this guy because I thought there's got to be some kind of... Uh, story behind this Bob and why he's outspoken. Apparently not. Apparently he kind of got the reputation for being a uh, extremely well-respected and clean individual. So I can see why he's... But again, <laughs> we were talking before about the hideous kind of reputation of pro wrestling. Stuff like this doesn't help. These other athletes just dunking on him, saying they're charlatans and shams. <laughs> and also thinking Hulk Hogan's the best athlete. It just shows, like, their lack of knowledge. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, they can all over. Uh, well, speaking of lack of knowledge, let's talk about the magazine Toy and Hobby World and its February <laughs> issue. They had a brief mention of wrestling toys. It said while the WWF had added seven new licensees at the start of 92, its toys declined in sales in 91. And that was attributed to its decline in television ratings nationally and an increase in popularity of World Championship Wrestling during 1991. Dave <laughs> says this shows how much Toy and Hobby World knows about wrestling, I guess. Yeah, I, this is uh, kind of an unfathomable conclusion to draw. The only thing that I could possibly think of is I think that WCW did get a toy range around this time as well, which might be why they're coming to the conclusion that, well, WCW must be more popular because they've got toys too, and they're competing. When in truth, as pretty much anybody with any kind of real knowledge would say, that the most likely scenario is that they're just not as popular. No. And uh, speaking of not popular... <laughs> we finally Mc... reached this topic yeah vince mcmahon has bought the rights to the mr america name for bodybuilding contests which makes dave thinks uh think he's in it for the long haul that said and this is where the speaking of not popular part comes in the syndicated wbf show is currently on hold because no one's interested in airing it <laughs> of course they're not now what eventually a... yeah <laughs> Eventually, it, it, does, it does find a place on the USA Network. Uh, Body but... stars. The USA Network can always bail out Vincent Mann when he needs a home for some shoddy television. Yes, and part three of 1992. I know you're looking forward to this, Liam. We can finally put the WBF to rest. Uh, oh, but... thank God. Yes. Uh, now, speaking about being put to rest, 
we have some serious Ooh. subjects uh, oh. as, we, as we are hitting the home stretch of this show. So there are two major stories to talk about. I will talk about the first. Uh, you will talk about the second. Mm-hmm. Um, so I call this section, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Very eloquently uh, headlined here. Yes. Uh, Dave, just a few weeks ago, that's Dave Meltzer, of course, uh, thought that Hulk Hogan and or Titan Sports getting brought down completely by the steroid scandal was a long shot. 201 were the odds, Dave, uh, mm. it. but now he's not so sure because at a house show in St. Louis on February 14th, the WWF locker room got raided by the DEA. Make no mistake about it. If it were not for some incredible luck, Dave writes, the Titan Empire may have been in a race to avoid crumbling before WrestleMania. Even with the incredible luck, it may be too late for Titan to inevitably avoid some form of shambles. Now, the following is taken... Um, from a Scott Keith Observer recap. The reason I did this is it is so convoluted, the two-week coverage in the Observer, because yeah. it's just the DEA, the local police, and the WWF all just lying circularly. Yeah. And it, it just it, it's a complete mess what actually happened. So this is a recap that we're going to go with. So about 6 o'clock in the evening, a bunch of federal agents and police officers hit the St. Louis Arena and searched everyone entering the building looking for drugs. Thankfully for Vince, they had been tipped off about an hour in advance and presumably everyone flushed their shit. Uh, The DEA is publicly denying any involvement, but someone inside the police department said it was either a DEA investigation or, quote, one hell of a strong tip. (laughs) The police department first denied that any search took place until informed that people actually saw them doing it. Oops. Yeah, then they admitted that, yes, maybe a search was taking place, but it had nothing to do with drugs. Then they were informed that people saw the dogs sniffing everyone's bags, at which point they admitted, okay, maybe it was a drug raid, but the DA (laughs) had nothing to do with it. Uh, This is well written by Scott Keith. This is good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Without the warning from inside, one WWF worker estimated about 10 of the wrestlers would have been caught red-handed. Remember, it's not a huge crew, so 10's a lot. Uh, yeah. for what was there. Basically, if someone had been busted with steroids in their bag, things would have all gone to hell for the WF in a hot minute, as the kids say. Turns out it was Blackjack Lanza that got the tip before they showed up and made sure everyone knew in advance. The WWF is claiming that it was for an unrelated arena employee and had nothing to do with the WF at all. This is the source. This is... A- Okay. Now, Dave uh, says this is according to the always truthful Basil DeVito. (laughs) But an independent source from the arena talked to Alex Marvez and said the search was event related and not anything to do with the arena. And the officer in charge introduced himself as DEA. Then she changed her story the next day. Mm. This independent source. Next day, WWF changed its story again, saying the police told them. It was a, quote, routine inspection done whenever a large group of people comes to the arena from out of state. Dave says it's indeed routine for the narcotics unit of a police department to be looking for narcotics. <laughs> uh, Dave tried to reach the police representative who came up with that story, but he was on vacation and couldn't comment. Okay. <sighs> so I-, I listened to Between the Sheets coverage of this, too. And-, and this was like, it seems, you know, like the Keystone Cops. That, yeah. they, that they were tipped off somehow or just somebody wanted them to do this. And they just did the worst job possible of trying to raid the WWF locker room in a way that clearly no one in the WWF was going to get caught. They'd been tipped off. Um, multiple people, including some of the biggest offenders, uh, people who could have been like Kerry Von Erich were not there because uh, of suspensions. So 
just a real clusterfuck here. In this is yeah, this this is a disaster. So there's always been the curious. I mean, this this story actually fascinates me completely. I, there's always been the story and the question of how and why. Yeah, the timing of this, why it happened, and there was there's a lot of speculation that Kerry's uh, prescription issues we just talked about was kind of an impetus for this. But there's a lot of the the, the fallout of them try them trying to do it is a hilarious Keystone Cops disaster, as you say. In later reports, it comes out that they actually got there at around four thirty in the afternoon, which is like way early for a house show because yeah. the the tip off from Lanza is essentially the fact they show up when the guys aren't there. So Lanza can just call them and say, hey, when you come, there's people here. You know, as you say, flush your shit. Don't, don't, don't bring it. Um, there were a couple of people who weren't on this show who were supposed to be, Ted DiBiase being one of them. Um, and just a very bizarre fallout where everybody's trying to deny that anything happened. The timing of an independent person says that it was absolutely to do with uh, exactly what everybody thinks, and then the story changes a day later, and how the day later the ref is changing their story again. The bit, you know, the, the, the even the police trying to kayfabe that it happened basically because it was a complete fucking disaster, and they don't want to, they don't want to be uh, seen as having screwed up a pretty yeah. much open goal. Yeah, imagine, imagine say yes, we searched the WWF locker room. Well, what did you find? Nothing. I mean, that sounds yeah. pretty embarrassing. Yeah, especially in 1992. Like some of these, some of these fucking vagabonds, <laughs> what they had in their bags, I'd like to see. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think the chances are very good that they would have drawn up nothing. Um, again, this is the period of time when there's like, yeah, you'll you'll hear stories about needles being left lying around from time to time and stuff like that. And I just, this is just the disaster of a of a raid, and it, it turns up nothing, and everybody's looking for a way out. WWE, of course, wants nothing to do with this. They they, they try and just absolutely do this. Don't look here, nothing to see. Um, the arena just seems to want to refuse to accept the the suggested responsibility that it is one of their employees, because why would you if it's not true? And the DEA just trying to wash their hands of the fact that they tried to do this, even though the only reason they'd be there is because they're looking for something. Yeah, now I'll tell you who should have been charged and arrested is the person who put together this card <laughs> I'm looking at here, okay? <laughs> Listen to some of these undercard matches. The Undertaker pinned J.W. Storm, sub for Kerry Von Erich. Ooh. Interesting that Meltzer talked about you know, Storm having that look that you're not the supposed look. to have. Yeah, yeah. but he, he apparently... Went to... The Bushwhackers defeated Brian Nobbs in Kato, uh, a sub for Jerry Sags, because Jerry's still out... Uh, as a result of that ridiculous attack that we talked about last time <laughs> yeah. uh, by the motors. IRS pin Virgil after hitting with a steel briefcase. Oh, man. The Warlord pin Jim Brunzel? Jesus. Okay, how did you not find anything? I, I mean, I <laughs> obviously tipped off, but the Warlord? I mean, he should have been arrested upon sight. <laughs> He's probably leaking. Yes! <laughs> The, the main event of the show was Randy Savage and Jake Roberts in a steel cage match. Only drew 5,500 people. So Again, nothing in Jake Roberts' bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, yeah, you talk about obviously steroids is what they're looking for, but Jake Roberts, oof, 1992 Jake Roberts? Mm-hmm. There, so, there, I will say that some of these people, their physiques were looking a little bit different. If you compare Royal Rumbles, 91 to 92, Cato uh, looked drastically different. He was, he was, he was gacked. In uh, in ninety one and not so not so big in the ninety two rumble, um, and Jake was looking a little bit tubbier than usual too in some of his appearances. 
That that's a good point. Yeah. So, but God, can you imagine if DEA had done this right and they'd bounce steroids? The, the, so, do you yeah. do you do you think do you think the company would have gone under if that would have happened? Uh, I don't think it would have. Uh, it depends what charge they try and get them on, because again, they, they, their big home run thing is we'll get to is distribution because they want to get Vince. But how are you going to get Vince when these guys are bringing stuff in their own bags? Um, if you go to that card and you suspect who you suspect, how many people on that card do you think would have got uh, most likely had something in their bag? The number. You know what? It's kind of funny. The Warlord is the only one who stands out in terms of like roids. Oh, yeah. Because well, I, I mean, he's, JW Storm character. Yeah, JW but... Storm. Yeah, J, yeah. I mean, depending. I mean, I don't. Um, but Savage yeah, I mean, was mostly off, right? Because he, yeah. he was wearing the shirt at this point. Yeah, and you know, I mean, with, with you know, Carrie not there, I mean, who knows what they would have found if he was there? But um, yeah, I guess you know, this was a maybe a, a relatively clean lineup. Uh, you know, not uh, something I would pay to go see, but uh, <laughs> that's a different story, I guess, for a different day. But interestingly, uh, they mentioned this on Between the Sheets that this didn't really get any local coverage in the papers in St. Louis. Again, seems curious in the sense of something like this, which is a very big story, getting no local news, kind of smells of someone being told not to. Yeah, and, and I guess, I don't know how much play it got nationally, but again, it's just it, it the optics of it with everything that was going on beforehand, very bad for Titan Sports. It's an easy headline. Yes. You know, WWF investigated the DEA by the DEA. Even that alone, if there was any meat to the bone whatsoever, that story is pretty devastating. Yeah. Now, if the WWF thought it got off scot free, there, well, they they they're wrong because Liam, <laughs> we are now going to uh, get into the really seedy part of we're going this downtown. Too. Yeah. Uh, what did what did you headline this? Double oh fuck. <laughs> That's right. It doesn't get any better, folks. Yes. If there weren't enough problems for one week for the WWF that we've just talked about, this past Saturday night on the Las Vegas-based Wrestling Insiders radio show with Mike Tanay, by the yes. way, is the host, guest Barry Orton spoke openly about alleged homosexual harassment within the WWF front office, including naming three names and a specific example of one attempting to hit on him. Dave doesn't mention the names. Obviously, I'm sure we'll, we'll mention them in, in, in a moment. Uh, while taught like this has been the subject of gossip around the wrestling business for years, Orton is only the second wrestler Dave knows of to go public that he was hit on by gay execs. Uh, former Atlanta wrestler Jim Wilson claimed it happened to him in the 70s. Uh, and of course, with this being tied to career enhancement. The WWF's talking head, Steve Planamenta, did comment on the allegations from Orson about homosexual advances in the workplace. And it turns out that the specific incident in question took place before Orton or the alleged gay person were even working for the WWF. So Steve pretty much dismissed Orton's allegations as another guy trying to sell a book. Lovely. Um, though Orton never made it big and spent two years in prison for vehicular homicide, Dave thinks he'll have more credibility with the public than Titan, who has thus far been unsuccessful in attacking the characters of Billy Graham and Dave Schultz. Uh, again, ties just my own personal note here, ties to that negative public opinion aspect from before. Who thinks the wrestling company is going to come off as the, the source of truth and credibility in the news? Like with the way the news is going to twist the, the news's approach on wrestling, as we've, we've talked about. And again, there are more the examples of that kind of come in the next two month period that we'll talk about. But that kind of 
anti-wrestling stance, the wrestling company's not going to come off as a beacon of credibility here. And, and the fact you've lied the whole time doesn't Well, help. yeah, it started <laughs> with a lie. So. Yeah, I mean, it's one, bad, it's one thing to be, you know, a phony pro wrestling company. It's another one to be a phony pro wrestling company that lies publicly about everything. <laughs> Orton says, let me begin by saying I believe it is each and every citizen's prerogative as to their sexual preference. I believe whatever they do is fine. I'm not blowing smoke where it doesn't need to be blown, but I'm talented. I worked very hard. Performing was my life. Imagine how I felt knowing I needed to kneel before someone. Boy, that could Woo! be used. Yeah. Yes. Again, it aged well. While this was all going on, the WF was in the midst of one of their best weekends at the gate in a long time as the promotion builds towards WrestleMania. Yet, this exceedingly healthy on-the-surface promotion has to be concerned over several major mass media stories in the works. It's pretty hard to speculate on what the result of those stories will be since they are all still being worked on at press time, says Dave, and we aren't privy to all the information that may wind up being released. They're really getting hammered now and it's going to get worse. Uh, and it's fascinating, by the way, to see what happens in real time relative to Vince compared to this here in uh, in 1992, because now that this becomes a piece of the story, this gets ugly. Yeah, and it's strike three. But make this no mistake about one. it. Yeah, it, it's strike three. And we're going to obviously talk about this because it blows up the bomb drops on Titan Sports. As soon as you turn the calendar to March, you all know what's coming. You know who the people involved are um and i don't really know i mean look the media coverage unprecedented uh, up until that point in history the only thing you can really compare it with is benoit i'm sure we'll talk about that um, yeah. next time but you got larry king knocking on the door you got uh donahue obviously that infamous episode Geraldo's now uh yep he gets in there so um yeah it is just absolutely insane the media coverage and I think this is a good place to leave off because, by God, we've laid it all on the line here. Indeed, we have, Kyle. This is this the, the stage is set for not only WrestleMania, but one of the more fascinating periods of time in terms of just a absolute barrage and a barrage that the drift would not be able to recover on for a long, long time. And I cannot wait to talk all about that because it's coming up March and April in 1992. We're not sure. Kyle, uh, you, you are the, the mastermind behind the segmenting. Are we thinking March and April together, or is March going to be so loaded? No. So it, this is going to be a fascinating show. We're going to, well, it's going to be March and WrestleMania, and that's yeah. it. So it's basically going to be just one month and a couple a couple days for WrestleMania. But yeah, it's fascinating because part two of 1992, WrestleMania will absolutely not be the headline story for the podcast <laughs> as, um, you know, Titan sports is reeling and, uh, you know, uh, you know, sent almost to it. What many people thought at the time was going to be its demise. It, it, it seemed very, very bad. And we will break down all of those shows that I talked about. Larry King, Donahue, Geraldo. Um, and yeah, we'll break down WrestleMania eight too, which is going to feel real inconsequential after we talk about that stuff. <laughs> I think that this is this is a good place to leave off. Kyle, an incredible two months to track. I mean, just the the, the, this, the stage being set in multiple ways. And uh, yeah, a lot to talk about for March. Yeah, can't wait to do it. You know, hopefully, uh, you know, people are always, we're always like, I can't wait to do it. And then it's like, it's a couple months till we do another podcast. But hey, <laughs> I assure you, we'll hurry on it, folks. We'll do what we can. These notes are massive, believe me. Um, but... I absolutely love doing it. Kyle, this has been an absolute blast to do. I hope you've enjoyed the show as much as I have, because I have just absolutely loved this. 
yeah, this this turned out great. Uh, you know, certainly our, our what what do they call our magnum opus or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. this was the this was the longest episode we've ever done. I believe we have crossed the four hour mark on the recording. Now I don't know we if have. the show is four hours because we were talking a little bit beforehand. But uh, my God, what an episode! It's an odyssey, ladies and gentlemen, and we are continuing on it. And the best is yet to come. So stick with us here on Squared Circle Gazette Radio for the great Kyle Ross. I am Liam O'Rourke. We are out of here, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan. Too sexy for Milan. New York and Japan.